0: China is thrusting itself on the international political stage. It's proposed a 12-point plan to bring about peace in Ukraine. It calls for respect for Ukraine's sovereignty and protection for civilians. It does not require Russia's invading army to pull out of Ukraine. The U.S. says China is far from an honest broker. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, we'll look at how tech giants and militaries around the world are wielding the power of artificial intelligence. And we'll speak with a retired Navy commander trying to break the world record for living underwater.
1: Everything we need is on this planet. We just need to find it. i got to live in the ocean. we
0: got to do something to find everything. More on the mission coming up. Also the problem of chronic absenteeism in schools across America. It's 4.01. News headlines are next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The Justice Department says former President Donald Trump is not absolutely immune from civil lawsuits over the January 6th Capitol attack. In a new legal filing, the department urges a federal appeals court to reject Trump's claims of immunity, as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
3: Trump is facing lawsuits filed by Capitol police officers and members of Congress who are seeking damages from the former president arising from the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Trump has claimed absolute immunity from civil suits based on his, quote, speech on matters of public concern. A district court judge rejected that argument. Trump appealed the matter to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which asked the Justice Department to weigh in on the legal question. In a new filing, the department is urging the appeals court to reject Trump's claim of absolute immunity. It says a president's speech is not protected if it constitutes incitement to imminent private violence. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
2: A Michigan man is facing federal charges after threatening to kill all Jewish officials in the state. He was arrested last month with multiple firearms. Today, Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel says she was among the targets. And in a Pennsylvania courtroom today, a man admitted to packing explosive materials and a lighter into a checked bag en route to Orlando. Neither he nor the bag made it onto the flight. He was arrested at home on Monday. The judge found probable cause to keep him in federal custody. In Walterboro, South Carolina, the defense has rested the fate of disbarred attorney Alec Murdoch now in the hands of the jury after a six-week trial. Defense attorney Jim Griffin says his client may have lied, cheated and stole from his clients for years, but that does not mean he killed his wife and his son.
4: Even if the financial day of reckoning was impending, if it was right there, Allen would not have killed the people he loved the most in the world. There's no evidence that he would do that.
2: The judge replaced a juror with an alternate today for inappropriately discussing the case. Home ownership has grown overall among people of color in the U.S. But as NPR's Arazu Rasvani reports, home ownership
5: rates among black families are lagging. Homeowners built more than $200,000 in wealth over the last decade, according to a new report from the National Association of Realtors. But a closer look at that number reveals disparities, particularly among black and white families. The gap between black and white homeownership has increased over the last decade. There was a 26% gap in 2011 that's grown to 29% more recently. Homeownership is a key contributor to wealth, and the lagging rates among black families has been detrimental to their net worth. The net worth for a white family is roughly $188,000, eight times more on average than for black families. Arzee Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles.
2: It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins. A local addiction treatment operation is closed after its CEO was arrested on health care fraud charges. Recovery Connection Centers of America operated 15 programs in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and served about 1,600 patients. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more.
6: Rhode Island U.S. Attorney Zachary Cunha says the charges come after a two-year-long investigation. His office alleges the company overbilled for the actual services it provided to addiction patients. He says the company billed public and private insurers for more therapy sessions than possibly could have been conducted.
4: Today's charges should serve notice that we're not going to stand by in the face of this kind of fraud that victimizes a vulnerable population by shortchanging them of critical help.
6: More than half of the center's patients are from Rhode Island. The company's CEO, Michael Breyer, was arrested at his home in Newton, Mass. this morning for 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts
0: lawmakers are working to make up for the loss of federal funding that has helped people buy food during the pandemic. The Extra Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits end today. The Senate Ways and Means Committee is taking up a supplemental budget passed by the House that provides $130 million in state funding to cover about 40% of the lost benefits. The six New England states will launch a center to mitigate climate-related emergencies. Governor Maura Healy announced today the Northeast Emergency Management Training and Education 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 Center will train emergency managers in all six states on how to better respond to climate change. Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency will be leading the program. And this traffic note, the eastbound off-ramp from the Mass Turnpike to Seaport Congress Street will close tonight at 9. It won't reopen until 5 tomorrow morning. There'll be a detour in place. In addition, the exit on 93 north to the Mass Pike eastbound and the south uh, Boston Seaport will be reduced to one lane. The State Department of Transportation says that's to accommodate nearby building construction. In the forecast, 45 degrees right now. Pretty dank day today. Look for a relatively clear night tonight, though. Should be dry, strong winds, temperatures about 29. Then clouds should gather again tomorrow. High is just about 40
7: degrees. Again, 45 degrees now in Boston at 4.07. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Ten minutes. That's how long Secretary of State
9: Antony Blinken spoke with his Russian counterpart today on the sidelines of an international gathering in India. It was the first time the two have met in over a year, and Blinken says it was only enough time to repeat some key concerns about arms control, a U.S. prisoner in Russia, and the war in Ukraine. Many countries around the world are eager to see some sort of diplomatic solution to that war, but the U.S. is skeptical, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports.
10: INDIA DIDN'T WANT THE WAR IN UKRAINE TO DOMINATE THE G-20 FOREIGN MINISTERS MEETING, BUT SECRETARY OF STATE ANTONY BLINKEN SAYS RUSSIA'S ACTIONS HAVE HAD RIPPLE EFFECTS AROUND THE GLOBE.
11: EVERY G-20 MEMBER, AND VIRTUALLY EVERY COUNTRY PERIOD, CONTINUES TO BEAR THE COSTS OF RUSSIA'S WAR OF AGGRESSION. A WAR THAT PRESIDENT PUTIN COULD END TOMORROW. If he chose to do so,
10: he says the U.S. wants a, quote, just and durable peace, and that means Russia has to pull out of Ukraine. But given that Russian President Vladimir Putin has failed to meet his objectives in Ukraine, he shows no signs he will walk away from the territorial gains he's made. And the Kremlin leader is still sounding rather confident, says Maria Snegovaya of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
12: He's doing well. He's quite confident that Russia is managing this conflict and Russia has the capacity to sustain it for a while as the Western resources and Ukraine resilience, from his perspective, get exhausted.
10: So she doesn't see any real diplomatic prospects, at least until Russia faces even more severe losses on the battlefield and more financial losses from sanctions. But there are growing calls for diplomacy around the world, particularly from countries in the global south, hard hit by rising food and energy costs. That's understandable, says Marie Ivanovich, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine.
13: This war is a disaster for Ukraine on so many different levels, um, and frankly, it is for Russia as well. And so countries want want that to stop.
10: But imagine, she says, there's a robber who invaded your home and took over several rooms.
13: And when the police are called and the police come in and the police say, in this case, the international community, well, you know, I mean, the robber has possession of the lower part of your house. So, you know, you really should make concessions to the robber. And, you know, we can all just move forward. I mean, from a Ukrainian point of view, this is completely unacceptable.
10: Yovanovitch says Ukraine has to win and Russia's, quote, imperial mindset needs to be defeated. She's skeptical about recent peace proposals from China China, as is Lise Howard of the U.S. Institute of Peace.
12: It's not clear to me what would be negotiated at this point. I mean, sure, if it's negotiating a Russian troop withdrawal, then that would make sense. As China said, sovereign borders need to be upheld. That's the first point in their peace plan. So it seems to me that if we uphold the first point of China's peace plan is to uphold sovereign borders, that that would be a great negotiating point to start from.
10: U.S. officials say China is, quote, far from being an honest broker. It has supported Russia economically and diplomatically, as it did again today in the G20 meeting, opposing a joint statement about the war in Ukraine. India, which hosted the meeting, could be in a better position to broker some kind of peace, says Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He points out that India abstained from UN votes on Ukraine and has been a major importer of Russian oil and gas since the war began.
14: On the other hand, of course, uh, India has influence in Washington because Washington is so anxious for India uh, to become a partner against China. So I find India uh, perhaps the most hopeful possibility.
10: He's not hopeful, though, of any peace process anytime soon, but he says as the world and the warring parties grow tired, there could be a, quote, provisional peace of exhaustion. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
8: Why aren't kids showing up to class That's a question many educators are asking this school year. By some estimates, chronic absenteeism doubled during the pandemic. And now, about halfway through the most normal school year since 2020, the situation hasn't improved in many places. And that means more students are at risk of falling behind and even dropping out. NPR's Janaki Mehta looked at what's keeping students from going to school and what can be done to bring them back. When the school year began, Isaac Moreno just did not want to go. He was
15: transitioning to junior high after spending his last two years of elementary school mostly at home in Los Angeles.
16: I think the reason I didn't like it at first was because I hadn't been to a middle school and the schedule was really different and everything. He says he never really liked school to
15: begin with. So after two and a half years of pandemic learning, going back five days a week in person was a major adjustment.
16: Like before I was going to one class and now it's split up into eight different classes. And it was just like a lot of work.
15: Three days a week or four
17: days a week, he would say to me, I'm sick. I don't feel okay. Can you just pick me up?
15: I don't want to be here today. That's Isaac's mom, Jessica Moreno. She says Isaac's missed 10 days of school so far this year. That means he's at risk of being chronically absent. That's when a student misses 10% or more of the school year. Students who are chronically absent tend to have trouble with reading and lower test scores, and they're more likely to drop out of school. Here's Hetty Chang. She leads the research
18: organization Attendance Works. Before the pandemic, about eight million students were considered chronically absent in the United States. By the end of last school year, that number is likely 16 million students.
15: In other words, she says the number of students who lost the routine of going to school doubled.
18: They've lost connections to peers, they've lost connections to adults, and it has certainly been exacerbated by very challenging staffing issues in schools.
15: Federal data on chronic absenteeism only comes out once a year. So it's hard to get a full picture of where things stand right now, but Chang says she hasn't seen the kind of recovery she'd hoped for.
18: I think people have been a little bit under the false impression that when COVID became more endemic that that would then result in a significant improvement in chronic absence, And I'm not seeing that.
15: We didn't see it either. In a survey of more than 20 school districts across the country, NPR found most still had heightened levels of chronic absenteeism. School leaders told us there are lots of reasons for this.
19: There's so much more fear of sending children to a a place. There's lots of people gathered. So when you think of housing,
20: dealing with homelessness, affordable transportation, may maybe due to transportation. I I think mental health, I'm sure that plays a part too.
15: That was Steve Carlson, Mel Atkins, and Ryan Vogelin, school leaders in New Mexico, Michigan, and Maryland. They echoed challenges we heard from educators in rural, suburban, and urban districts. Voglin is the Director of Student Services in Anne Arundel County Public Schools he sees the problem in his county getting worse and worse.
20: I would say transportation has been our number one issue this year. Um, we are short bus drivers. We have struggled all year to cover all bus routes. You know That impacts a lot of our um, higher poverty areas where some of our parents don't have as flexible jobs, where or, or they may not have access to their own transportation.
15: Steve Carlson leads the school district in San Juan County, New Mexico. It's mostly rural, and part of it's in Navajo Nation attendance in his district has improved over last year but it's nowhere near pre-pandemic times the immense loss from covid is still raw for families
19: in his district navajo Nation suffered from the pandemic and crazy proportions compared to the rest of the nations matter of fact we still have in our schools we still have a mask mandate and we We're dealing with a lot of mental health issues. All reasons showing up to school has been
15: harder for his students. As is often the case in education, kids living in poverty, students of color, and children with disabilities are more likely to be chronically absent. School leaders told me they're trying all kinds of things to bring kids back to school, and they're using COVID relief money to pay for those efforts. Here's Carlson again.
19: So we've brought in social-emotional learning help. We have kind of extra counselors. His
15: district is also investing in a research-backed strategy that's proven to show results. Knocking on doors.
18: Home visits can be very effective when they're done well.
15: That's Hetty Chang again. The state of Connecticut put close to $11 million of its federal relief aid toward a home visit program. Six months later, home visits improved attendance by about 15 percentage points. Chang says high-quality, regular visits lead to strong relationships between schools and their students, relationships that give kids a sense of belonging. Another thing schools can do to help attendance is collect data throughout the school year, not just once at the end of the year.
18: When you look at your data regularly, it can allow you to reach out to students before the challenges are so entrenched that you can't turn them around.
4: Uh, We've looked at data on a weekly or biweekly basis.
15: That's Mel Atkins. He leads attendance efforts for Grand Rapids Public Schools in Michigan. For years, his district didn't just gather data, they shared it in big ways.
4: We had these eight-foot leaderboards in the building that displayed our monthly data. And it wasn't always good, but what it did was spark a conversation.
15: A conversation that got lots of community leaders educated and involved in a robust program to get kids to school. Within three years, they cut chronic absenteeism by more than half. The pandemic hampered those efforts, but this year Atkins and his team are focused on bringing back a playbook they already know works. And Hetty Chang wants school leaders to know, even though it's more than halfway through the school year, there is still time.
18: It's not too late to identify the kids struggling in the first semester and invest in outreach. You still have enough time to improve attendance.
15: Isaac Moreno also has time to improve his attendance and avoid becoming chronically absent this year. He tells me going to school still feels like a lot, but there are some things he looks forward to now.
16: Just recently in my school, opened up a bunch of like sports for middle schoolers, and I think that's something that kind of made school fun again. What do you play? I play basketball. I see a
13: big
15: difference in the past two months. He now has friends, and I think that's giving him his life back. Back in school and back to some kind of normal. Janaki Mehta, NPR News.
9: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Los Angeles Police Officers Union has proposed scaling back officers' duties. We'll find out why in about 15 minutes. And coming up next, military might and the power of artificial intelligence. This is WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Checking business and upsweep for stocks today, the down rose
0: more than 1 percent or 342 points. It closed at 33,004. SP and p and Nasdaq both gained about three-quarters of a percent. The S&P finished the session at 3981. The Nasdaq closed at 11,463. General Electric Aerospace is planning to spend $31 million on its Lynn manufacturing plant this year. It says it'll pay for building improvements and tool redesigns to support engine development. The project is part of a company-wide GE investment of $450 million to improve and modernize its facilities across the country. We have business news coming up on Marketplace at 630. It's now 420.
22: WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com.
0: Coming to WBR City Space Thursday, March 9th, a week from tonight, Julian Shapiro Barnum, host of the web series Recess Therapy, Featuring hilarious interviews with kids. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Lots of clouds around now. Should clear out tonight, though. Pretty dry tonight. Temperatures about 29 degrees. And for tomorrow, overcast once again. Highs about 40. Tomorrow night, snow showers amounting to about 2 to 4 inches by Saturday morning. Blustery winds. A pretty sloppy day on Saturday, too. This is WBUR.
23: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
24: And I'm Ari Shapiro. At least one billion surveillance cameras are spying on the world right now, according to one estimate. And more than half of them are in China, though the country has less than a fifth of the world's population. To sort through data from those hundreds of millions of cameras, the Chinese government is enlisting the help of artificial intelligence. Technology that can identify faces, voices, even the way someone walks. Paul Shari investigated the country's surveillance systems for his new book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. He writes that AI has the power to reshape the entire landscape of human governance and warfare, from enabling the spread of authoritarianism to influencing how wars start and end. Paul Shari, welcome back to All Things Considered.
25: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
24: You say early on in the book that the dangers of AI are not the dangers science fiction warned us about. We don't have to be afraid of killer robots rebelling against their human makers, at least not yet. So, what is the immediate threat?
25: Well, the immediate threat isn't that the AI systems turn on us, it's what people may do with these AI technologies. And we can see, as you mentioned in China, the development of an AI enabled model of repression that China is pioneering, particularly in Xinjiang. Uh, where they're using AI to help uh, in the repression of the ethnic Uyghurs that live there, but also nationwide. And then China's beginning to export its model of AI-enabled repression globally.
24: When you spent time in China looking at the country's use of AI, what surprised you?
25: So many things. Um, One of them is, you know, it's one thing to hear about 500 million surveillance cameras deployed in China, but it's an entirely different thing to walk down the streets of a major Chinese city and see these cameras everywhere, at light poles, at intersections, halfway down the block. Sometimes to the point of absurdity, I would sit and count how many cameras there were on a given light pole. And so the, the surveillance is very ubiquitous. And it's not trying to be hidden because, of course, the Chinese Communist Party wants to subtly remind people that, in fact, they are being watched. Yeah. And. One of the things that AI enables the government to do is to then put electronic eyeballs behind all these cameras. Because how do you monitor 500 million cameras? Well, you need AI to do it.
24: As China exports this technology and these standards and norms to countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela and others, how does that ripple
25: out? Well, one of the things that's really troubling, of course, is China's export of its surveillance technology and the social software, the norms and standards behind how it's used. China's technology for policing and surveillance has been sold to over 80 countries worldwide, but China's also been engaging in training with countries on things like information management and cyberspace laws and norms, exporting its model for how AI technology can be used for censorship and surveillance, Uh, Over 30 countries have been engaged in some of these training sessions. And in many cases, we've seen that following Chinese engagement, there have been laws that other countries have passed that show China's model.
24: Is it accurate to view this as a kind of yin-yang, where on the one hand, China is spreading this AI-powered autocratic philosophy, and on the other hand, the US and Western Europe are spreading something else?
25: Well, one of the hard parts about this problem is that there should be, we would like to see pushback from democratic countries, the United States and others about how AI is used so that there is a competing model that's consistent with democratic values, but it doesn't exist yet. Hmm. Um, There's, of course, quite a bit of pushback here in the United States and in Europe against the use of facial recognition technology, particularly by law enforcement. Certainly, democratic governments are not doing what the Chinese government is doing, But one of the things that's difficult within democratic societies is because power is so much more decentralized, the process of coming up with a model for AI governance is much messier. It's slower because there's a give and take between the government and local and state and federal authorities and civil society and the media and grassroots movements of citizens. And so it's taking longer for there to be a model coming out of democratic countries, and that's a problem because there's a vacuum in really the ability to push back against what China is doing.
24: I'd love for you to share an anecdote that you begin the book with where you describe aircraft dogfight trials, where there are two simulated pilots. One is
25: human, one is AI. And what happened? Sure. So the US military did a project to build an AI dogfighting agent. So an AI agent that could control an aircraft in a simulator although they're now working on transporting this to real world aircraft and it could engage in dogfighting against a human. And in the final trials, the winning agent among a number of different companies that submitted their AIs in a competition went head to head against an experienced Air Force pilot and hands down crushed the human pilot. Uh, Human pilot didn't get a single shot off against the AI. And one of the things that was quite remarkable was that the AI actually learned on its own new techniques for dogfighting that humans actually can't do, Mm. executing head-to-head gunshots when there's a split second when the aircraft are circling each other and the aircraft are nose-to-nose, and there's really no good way for a human to get a shot off.
24: It's just too dangerous.
25: It's too dangerous. The aircraft are racing at each other um, at high speeds and they risk a collision, and there's only a split second where you actually could make an engagement. But the AI learned that it could do that. It could do that with superhuman precision, and it was very lethal and effective.
24: Paul, I know you said at the beginning, we don't have to worry about AI rebelling against humans and overpowering us, but what you're saying right now is not reassuring. (laughs)
25: Well, Well, I do think there's a risk that over time in warfare, for example, as more and more AI systems are adopted by militaries, we begin to see a transition to a period of warfare in which Humans effectively have to hand over control to machines. Some Chinese scholars have talked about the idea of a singularity on the battlefield where the pace of combat action eclipses humans' ability to respond. And militaries effectively have to turn over the keys to AI systems just to remain competitive. And that is a troubling prospect.
24: To end on a more positive note, of course, there's a chance that AI could start or inflame a war, but you also write that AI could help avoid war. How would that work?
25: Well, one of the things that AI might be potentially very valuable for is increasing transparency among states and making it easier for states to process information and to have more accurate information about, for example, political decision-making among other countries or the military balance of power. A great example of this came out of the uh, run-up to Russia's invasion in Ukraine, where the United States government released lots of information about Russia's military buildup, helping to shine a light on the fact that Russia was poised to invade Ukraine. Now, they didn't stop Russia's invasion, but what it allowed the U.S. to do was to convince allies that this invasion was coming, it was likely very real, and to help build up political and diplomatic support for Ukraine. And that's a great example where AI can be used to help process information from drones and satellites. And so that use of AI to get more information, accurate information about the world could be one way in which AI could be very stabilizing internationally.
24: Paul Shari's latest book is Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Thanks a lot.
25: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered.
0: Coming up on WBUR, a local high school teacher turns the spotlight on a woman who was a top advisor to a series of American presidents during and after World War II. The Confidant is coming up in just about 20 minutes. The league-leading Boston Bruins try to get their ninth straight win tonight as they greet the Buffalo Sabres at the Garden. Bruins say they've extended the contract of star forward David Posternock. The contract is for eight years, worth a total of $90 million. And in sunny Florida, the bats were alive for the Sox today. Boston smacked the Phillies 15 to 3 in a spring training matinee in fort myers this is wbur it's four
7: we're funded by you our listeners and by semester off an education and wellness program in wellesley helping college students and high school grads get back on track summer semester starts june 5th semesteroff.com
26: the saudi government has loosened controls on that country's cultural life One critic says the change is a calculated tactic by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman.
5: If I entertain my population, they won't mind that it's coming with this
26: huge price on their safety, on their freedom, on their fundamental human rights. Do these cultural freedoms come at the cost of other liberties? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Biden administration is slapping new sanctions on Russia while approving a new weapons package to help fortify Ukraine a year after Russia's invasion. The new sanctions will hit Russian banks, manufacturers and individuals who have helped Moscow evade earlier rounds of sanctions. White House Security Council spokesman John Kirby says Moscow's economy has shown some resilience in the face of Western sanctions And he pointed to Russia's assistance from China as a potential problem.
28: The president's strong belief, and he said this himself, is that this is not a move that would be in the best interest of the Chinese. And they're standing in the international community, which we know, you know, they highly prize.
27: Today, the U.S. Secretary of State met on the sidelines of the G20 summit with his Russian counterpart for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Secretary Blinken reiterated U.S. support for Ukraine over the long haul. The House Ethics Committee has opened a formal probe into New York Congressman George Santos. The Republican has faced a firestorm of scandals. NPR's Brian Mann has more. George Santos deceived
24: voters about his career and education, claimed falsely to have Jewish heritage, and has refused to answer questions about where he got hundreds of thousands of dollars that helped fuel his winning campaign on Long Island. Now, the House Ethics Panel has formed a subcommittee to probe whether Santos engaged in, quote, unlawful activity, also whether he failed to follow conflict of interest laws, and whether he engaged in sexual misconduct toward an individual seeking employment in his congressional office. In a statement, the committee said launching this investigation doesn't mean any violation occurred. Santos has acknowledged embellishing his resume but says he committed no crimes and plans to serve out his full two-year term. Brian Mann,
27: NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Mori Healy is on the road to make her case for the $55.5 billion state budget she unveiled yesterday. She made a pitch for the spending plan to 800 members of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce today. WBUR's Steve Brown was there. Healey
11: said the housing crisis, high cost of child care, and the hard time companies are having finding skilled workers threaten the state's ability to be competitive and affordable. She said her budget and tax reform package can help fix that. After her comments, Chamber President Jim Rooney
4: praised the governor's pitch. I think that many of the initiatives that are included in the budget and in the tax cut proposal have been priorities of the business community, you know, specifically capital gains, estate tax, but also some of the other more targeted tax initiatives like the um, early childhood education uh, and so forth.
11: Rooney says he is very concerned about competitiveness, noting other states have been actively trying to lure local companies away. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: The Department of Conservation and Recreation is trying to address a lifeguard shortage by offering more pay. The state is offering lifeguards up to $27 an hour. That's up a dollar from last year. The state is also offering bonuses if the attendants sign on early and more money if the lifeguards commit to working through Labor Day. A former Registry of Motor Vehicles manager and a driving school owner will plead guilty to charges they had a scheme to issue driver's licenses and permits for people who failed their tests. The U.S. attorney for Massachusetts said today the former manager in the Brockton RMV office took money in exchange for giving passing scores on learner's permit tests. The driving school owner is accused of paying an examiner to falsely report that some applicants had passed their road tests. Each faces up to 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. A New England institution will soon undergo a rare leadership change. The Old Farmer's Almanac, which is published in Dublin, New Hampshire, is looking for a new editor. Olivia Richardson reports this role doesn't open up very often. The Almanac started publishing in 1792. Jana Stillman
9: became its first female editor in 2000, and only the 13th person
17: to ever hold that position.
18: It was suggested to me that if I had trisca fear of the number 13, they would bring somebody in for a couple weeks and I could start
0: as number 14 a little bit later. But I said no, and actually 13 has been very lucky for me.
9: Stillman said it's a great job. You get lots of handwritten letters from readers, and you get to keep growing and exploring lots of different topics, from gardening to recipes to husbandry. She said the most important quality for the next Almanac editor
21: is curiosity. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Olivia Richardson.
0: The forecast is coming up.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Got a pretty dank day going, but clouds should pull back tonight, leaving
0: clear skies for part of the night. Should be windy, down around 30. Tomorrow, back to the gray skies. Highs about 40. A wintry mix tomorrow night of snow and rain. We could have two to four inches of snow on the ground by Saturday morning. And then Saturday, more unsettled wintry weather. Rain and snow mixing up once again. Highs about 38 degrees. 45 degrees now in Boston at 435.
23: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from
9: NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The union representing police officers in Los Angeles wants officers to have fewer responsibilities. Specifically, it is said police should no longer be involved in the response to many non-criminal or non-emergency calls. Now, This would be a major shift in the role that police play in the country's second largest city. And for more, we're joined now by NPR's Adrian Florido. Hi, Adrian.
28: Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what
8: is the police officers union proposing here?
28: Well, the Los Angeles Police Protective League has released a list of 28 types of calls for help that it thinks should be handled not by police officers, but uh, instead by unarmed responders from other city agencies. This list includes things like, you know, when someone is having a nonviolent mental health crisis or a report of illegal street vending or a loud house party or mm-hmm. uh, clearing a homeless encampment, which is something that police do a lot in Los Angeles. This is Jaretta Sandoz, a vice president of the police officers union at a press conference yesterday.
0: We believe ceasing to respond to certain non-emergency calls will allow Los Angeles police officers to be able to protect the community
8: in a more safer manner.
28: Specifically, the union said also that this change would free police up to focus on more serious and violent crimes.
8: And why exactly are they proposing this now? Like, what is the context here?
28: Well, the context is that the police union is in uh, negotiations with the city over its next labor contract, and the union says that police are overworked and understaffed. The LAPD has historically had more than 10,000 sworn officers, but currently has closer to 9,000. So this is a a bargaining position.
8: And how are leaders in LA responding to this proposal so far?
28: Well, it's a mixed bag. Uh, there are members of the city council who think this is a good thing, uh, that it's in line with what they and, and many activists want, which is to take armed police out of many routine interactions that sometimes lead to fatal use of force. Uh, this is Councilman Tim McCosker.
3: It signifies an offer to do their part to participate in a reallocation of how we create public safety.
28: Other leaders in the city, though, were not impressed. Uh, A spokesman for Mayor Karen Bass sent me a statement saying that on the whole, the police union's proposal would compromise public safety. And he noted that the mayor is finalizing her own public safety strategy.
8: Wait, wait. Did the mayor's office explain why she thinks something like this would hurt public safety?
28: That was the extent of the statement. It didn't go any deeper than that. Um, uh, But, you know, the city, uh, Elsa, does not currently have an army of unarmed emergency responders. Uh, Fernando Guerra, who runs the Center for the Study of L.A. at Loyola Marymount University, told me there's no way the city could do something like this in the short term because of how long it would take to identify, hire, and train those people. And the Police Protective League knows that.
4: The PPLA is bringing this up in a sense knowing that there's no way the city can say yes because they're not prepared. And now PPLA is going to look great. So, hey, we proposed this, and they've said no.
28: So this all speaks to to how complex and also politicized the search for public safety solutions is in Los Angeles. Uh, in any case, members of the city council say that any such change would have to be approved by the city council.
8: Hmm. That is NPR's Adrian Florido. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thanks, Elsa. 22 feet deep in a tropical lagoon
9: in the Florida Keys, today we find Joseph DeTore. He arrived yesterday, and if all goes well, he'll be there for another 98 days to complete Project Neptune 100. It's a medical research and marine conservation mission, which would, by the way, break a world record for underwater human habitation. We've reached him in his 100 square foot underwater pressurized suite near Key Largo. Joseph Duturi, welcome to All Things Considered, and thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a great honor and privilege. So you have said that the world record is but a small, teeny tiny part of your mission. So Why don't we start by asking you, what is the majority of your mission about?
1: Oh boy, it's threefold and I I am looking to increase science, technology, engineering, and math for our kids, right? So while we're down here doing this research, we are working with schools in the area, local marine labs that are uh, nonprofit corporations, and we're bringing kids down here and showing them the science that we're doing so that they can get energized about the science. We're also doing biomedical research. That's the specific research that my PhD is in, and we're doing human research, and I happen to be the Guinea Pig. So uh, lots of before tests, blood tests, right? And then during the time while we're down here, we're doing the same test about five times. And then when I come up, we'll see what has happened and what has changed. And the third and final thing, and possibly the most important thing, is we're doing a bunch of outreach. We're having noted marine scientists, such as Sylvia Earle, is going to come down here and have a conversation. I get to spend the night with Sylvia Earle down here and hang out and chit chat. How's that? I'd love to know there's kind of a humming sound behind you. What is that? Is
9: that part of this underwater pressurized suite? Are we hearing that working behind you?
1: Yeah, this is a positive pressure habitat and the air has to be forced down into it because we're at the bone crushing depth of 22 feet of seawater. So basically it has to continually bubble out. And uh, it's it's an unfortunate side effect, but uh, it's a it's a necessity because I really like breathing.
9: (laughs) Yeah, I think keeping you alive is certainly the goal here. All right. I know that we've just met I don't want to get overly personal, but I do have to ask you,
1: how does one go to the bathroom there? Oh, that is not where I thought you were going, but that's a (laughs) great question. (laughs) So uh, we have a commode down here. As it's only 22 feet, we're able to pressurize it down. The big thing is it has to be macerated and pumped back to the surface and it joins the regular sewer line. So you got to go somewhere.
9: You know, we've talked about the things that you're hoping for, but Is there anything here that you fear could go wrong?
1: Yeah, so our biggest fear right now is the isolated, confined, extreme environment because I'm at about a little over one and a half times the pressure that you're at right now and nobody stayed here longer than 73 days is the current world record. I mean, you know, we're going to be doing weekly psychological interviews with my psychologist as we get towards the end. We're going to need probably to move that from a once a week meeting to about a once every other day meeting just to check in. So that's the one thing that I'm concerned about is that uh, even though I'm having guests come down here, I'm, I'm basically in a, a prison cell. I mean, I can get out and swim around the outside of it, but I still have to get in and there is no sunlight. So I'm taking vitamin D supplements. So it's kind of tough, isolated from family, friends, uh, you know, I have three daughters, so I don't get to see them, but it's kind of a, all in the name of science, if you will.
9: What is it about ocean exploration that appeals to you? I know your website notes that you're also known as Dr. Deep Sea.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So in 2012, I retired from the Navy and I got hired by uh, James Cameron to do some work with him on his exploration to the bottom of the ocean. So I'm looking at the research that they're doing and people had pulled a... DNA sample that he found at 35,000 feet, nobody had ever seen it before. They pulled the sample off it and when they did, they found it as a partial cure for Alzheimer's. And at that point in my life, I said, everything we need is on this planet, we just need to find it. So that's why I was like, you know what, 10 years later, I'm like, I got to live in the ocean, we got to do something to find everything.
9: University of South Florida Associate Professor and retired Navy Officer Joseph Detoury. We reached him on day two of what he expects to be, a 100-day mission living under the sea. Thank you and best of luck
8: to you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Now, most people here in Los Angeles are renters. Most of the people who represent them are homeowners. But as David Wagner of LAist News reports, that's started to change in recent elections.
29: Los Angeles residents consistently rank housing affordability as a top concern. 30 percent of renters here spend more than 50 percent of their income on rent. Emily Pineda moved into an apartment with her sister in 2018. She says their rent has already gone up about $300 a month.
30: We're paying more each month, each year, and nothing gets better, nothing's improved.
29: Pineda isn't just a renter, she's also a voter.
30: You know, when elected officials have the similar background story as you or share the same struggles as you, they can really advocate in a different way.
29: Homeowners continue to dominate political office in L.A., But Pineda played a small part in changing that by voting for new L.A. County Supervisor Lindsay Horvath, the only renter on the board.
2: I've been renting since I was in college. I think that's the experience of most millennials who have been saddled with student debt.
29: Since taking office, Horvath has pushed to keep L.A.'s COVID eviction protections in place, far longer than other parts of the country. She says renters are the ones falling into homelessness, but lawmakers often spend more time worrying about landlords.
2: I think our priorities are out of whack. We have to make sure that we are listening to the people who need our help the most to stay in housing and be protected.
29: It
25: does, I think, matter to have representation along that axis.
29: UCLA urban planning professor Michael Lenz says efforts to diversify LA politics have long focused on race, gender and sexuality. But until recently, renters have not received the same attention. It's a pretty
20: fundamental part of who we are and how we live in a city. So I wanted to
24: bring my lease that I have uh, as one of the renters here uh, in the city council.
29: At a recent L.A. City Council meeting, Councilmember Hugo Soto-Martinez waived a copy of his lease before taking a key vote on new renters' rights.
24: What we're really talking about, my colleagues, is about who does this city represent?
29: Soto Martinez says age has a lot to do with why a small but growing number of renters like him are getting elected.
24: It's very generational. You know, my, my parents were street vendors, uh, immigrants from Mexico, and they were able to buy a house uh, because, you know, buying a house was affordable.
29: For millennials like him, even those with good salaries, L.A.'s median home price of $830,000 feels completely out of reach.
24: That's a lot of folks that are in my age group or younger. We are renters. That's who we are. And so I think that's the generation that's being elected.
29: Landlords also see a generational shift. Well, I think um, millennials are, in many cases, are just complacent. Dan Uckelson heads a landlord group called the Apartment Association of Greater L.A. He's seen L.A.'s new council members helping to pass new limits on eviction and a requirement for landlords to pay relocation assistance to tenants priced out by large rent hikes. Some of the younger generations
4: are satisfied with renting property and don't necessarily have the
22: impetus to own property and deal with all the responsibility that comes with it.
29: Still, there are more landlords on the L.A. City Council than renters. Resident Emily Pineda wants to change that too. Just like she did in November's County Board of Supervisors election, she plans to vote for a new kind of city council member in an upcoming special election.
7: Yeah,
30: I'm definitely gonna vote for the renter in that race.
29: She's even planning to volunteer on his campaign. For NPR News, I'm David Wagner in Los Angeles.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. President Biden is about to get the chance to wield a tool of the top office for the first time, the veto pen. What measure he plans to make his first veto on coming up in about 15 minutes. Also, what Boston neighborhood still has relatively affordable homes? Trick question. None of them. Today, the Common Podcast takes Boston's challenging housing market into consideration. Find the Common on your podcast app.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. Astreetframes.com. The eastbound off-ramp from the Mass Turnpike to
0: Seaport Congress Street is going to be closed tonight at 9 o'clock. It'll reopen tomorrow at 5 a.m. The Transportation Department says it's to accommodate building construction nearby. There will be a detour in place. Also, the exit on 93 north to the Mass Pike eastbound and the South Boston Seaport will be reduced to one lane. Clearing skies tonight. Temperatures about 30. Tomorrow, back to the cloud cover. 40 for a high, then a wintry mix Friday night into Saturday.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
31: Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market.
29: Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner.
2: We really believe when people have good information, they can make great
31: decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR.
29: For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. This is
0: WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Christopher C. Gorham teaches modern American history to high schoolers in Westford, Massachusetts. Several years ago, he was captivated by a photograph from the middle of the 20th century. It showed President Harry Truman speaking animatedly with a woman identified as the Assistant Secretary of Defense, Anna Rosenberg. Gorham had never heard of her. There was no biography of her, nothing that would even hint at the singular power this woman wielded not just with Truman, but with presidents before and after. Gorham tracked down Anna Rosenberg's archives at Harvard, and he was stunned by what he found.
32: There was handwritten letters from Harry Truman, President Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson. It was just on and on. It was a treasure trove of history.
0: All written to Anna.
32: Yes, yes.
0: Anna Rosenberg was the top woman at the Pentagon during the Truman administration as it desegregated the armed forces. President Eisenhower nominated her for the Medal of Freedom, and LBJ sought her counsel during the battles over civil rights. But Rosenberg played her most pivotal roles during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. Chris Gorham felt her accomplishments shouldn't be lost to history. So he wrote her biography. It's called The Confidant. He says Anna's story begins in Hungary. She was born there around 1900. Her family was Jewish and anti-Semitism was growing. Her father lost his job and sought refuge in New York. Anna and the family joined him there two years later.
32: By then, he was a fiercely patriotic American. He loved the idea of voting, of jury duty. He, the American flag brought tears to his eyes. And young Anna, you know, really saw that in her father and, and it became part of her life. She said... You know, every time I leave the United States, I come back with a renewed love. She
0: had a great way about her, and I think that served her well on the diplomatic front and on the personal front. She was demure. I know you say she spoke with a light Hungarian accent with a bit of the Bronx where she grew I mean, up kind right. of mixed in.
32: She was genuine, I should say that, to start. But she was a chameleon in far as if she was talking to a teamster's union of truckers, she could talk tough. You know, she could use some of the salty language. But she could also be, like you say, demure, and she could be uh, very womanly. She also had a wonderful relationship with women. And it was just a very rare combination of skills, of EQ that Anna Rosenberg possessed
0: and under FDR she became his top labor troubleshooter and there's one chapter that i especially like that you have on on uh, what's called the buffalo plan it was the fall of 1942 she took on the issue of a shortage of workers in buffalo and buffalo new york at the time was a hub of production for aircraft and ships and ordnance for the war effort fdr wanted to find out about the labor crisis and what could be done to fill the gaps. So she proceeded to get command of the situation and create an entire workforce where there had been none. How did she go about doing this?
32: Roosevelt sends Anna Rosenberg and makes her the czar of the situation, the labor czar of of that region. And she said right away, we're going to need more women. And it wasn't just single women. It was married. It was married with children. And they were going to need childcare, And they were going to need housing. And they were going to need a place to cash their checks at... Two in the morning when they got out of work. And she thought of all
0: those things. I mean, Aside from the job, she thought of all the ancillary things that had to go with this to make were, it work.
32: There was parks that were kept open and heated. There was movie theaters that were kept open for these women. You mean
0: like at five in the morning?
32: Absolutely. So they
0: would have a movie to go through if they were working that
32: shift. And not only women, but black Americans. And when the leaders of Buffalo resisted, and Anna lectured them and said, this is no time for disunity, this is no time for discrimination, it's all hands on deck. And disabled Americans, everybody pitched in, and those contracts were fulfilled. And uh, we were able to fight the war on all the fronts.
0: There was uh, one interesting anecdote that you have, that there was a bored young woman in a factory in Buffalo. This woman was punching out tiny screws on a machine. And Anna said to her, this is pretty monotonous, huh? And the woman said yes. And so Anna grabs her arm and follows her through the manufacturing process to what end?
32: They link arms, and they go through the factory, and they find out that those little tiny screws that this woman was putting together all day long were part of a gun sight for a fighter plane. And the woman had a totally different look on her face, and it was a look of pride.
0: And this plan, the Buffalo Plan, became a national model. How?
32: The folks in charge of airplane manufacturing on the West Coast, shipbuilding on the East Coast, they took the Buffalo Plan and they grafted it everywhere uh, from coast to coast. And it allowed the arsenal of democracy to fire on all cylinders The duration of the war. She was
0: dispatched by FDR to the battlefield twice. What was her role, and how did she execute it?
32: Just a few weeks after D-Day, Anna finds herself following the General Patton's army across France, and she's sleeping in the tents. She's eating rations off the hoods of jeeps, and she's listening to these guys, these these soldiers, and they're pulling pictures out of their helmets and telling her stories and sharing their dreams and their hopes for the future. And what she found is that. They wanted an education. They wanted to go to college. This generation of Great Depression and then war had never even dreamed that that was a possibility. But if they made it back alive, that's what they wanted to do.
0: And they wanted health care, and that became part of the, a major part of the GI Bill. Absolutely. She had a nickname, Seven Job Anna. Tell us about her, some of the other jobs that she had.
32: Well, she had two executive positions in the New Deal, a half dozen wartime positions. They used to call it manpower, but it was really a personnel position. She then turned to Veterans Affairs. She loved the guys that she had spent time with in Europe. She'd seen what they'd seen, the death, the destruction, the widows, the orphans. And she knew they were different people when they came back to the States than when they'd left. So she worked very, very assiduously for Veterans Affairs.
0: With all that she accomplished, why do you think there had been no previous book about her, including an autobiography, a memoir?
32: I think she provided a moving target for historians, and one of the reasons was her own reluctance to trumpet her accomplishments, and that a lot of it was related to her name. You know, she shared the surname Rosenberg with the atomic spies.
0: And there was no relation.
32: No relation at all. In fact, Rosenbergs around the country were shunned and lost friends. and But Anna didn't want to trumpet her own accomplishments in part because of the name, And she also, all the folks that had worked in the New Deal and through with Roosevelt during World War II had written memoirs, and she found that distasteful. The me and FDR memoir uh, industrial complex was not to her liking. And she thought, you know, I've been told in the Oval Office and in the sunroom of the White House and over lunches and dinners, one-on-one with President Roosevelt, all these things, and I'm going to keep the confidence. And she was the confidant after all.
0: Christopher Gorham, thank you.
32: Thank you, Lisa, for having me, and thanks to your listeners.
0: Christopher C. Gorham is the author of the book, The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America.
23: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all electric zero emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Drexel University whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at Drexel.edu slash Ambition Can't Wait. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Look for clearing skies tonight. Winds picking up, temperatures down around 30 degrees. Then for tomorrow, clouds return, about 40 for a high. A wintry mix of rain and snow tomorrow night into Saturday could leave about 1 to 3 inches of snow behind. And then for Sunday, up around 41 degrees with partly sunny skies. It's 4.59.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe.
12: I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR Boston's NPR
5: news station.
0: President Biden is about to get the chance to wield the veto pen for the first time. Vetoes are
5: relatively rare.
0: They
31: do tend to happen in periods of something like divided government.
0: More on what the president is considering vetoing coming up on this Thursday, March 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Ukrainian officials say they've been fighting the first hybrid war in cyberspace and on the ground. A trial surrounding 9 11 has been delayed for years, and lately things have slowed down or stopped entirely.
8: We're just waiting,
30: really, until we get a go ahead that the agencies even want to continue with plea negotiations. Everything is stuck.
0: And he was sought out by Steely Dan, Carlos Santana, and Joni Mitchell. American jazz saxophonist and composer Wayne Shorter has died at the age of 89. It's 501.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House Ethics Committee says it is launching an investigation into embattled Congressman George Santos... NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the first-term Republican is facing growing calls to resign after admitting to a string of lies about his professional, personal, and educational background.
10: The House subcommittee says it will investigate a number of potential ethics violations, including whether Santos engaged in any unlawful activity with respect to his congressional campaign. The panel says it will also look into allegations of sexual misconduct that were brought by a prospective congressional aide. Lawmakers from both parties have been pressuring Santos to step down, but the congressman has refused to give up his seat. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has stopped short of calling for Santos to resign, but has said that he should be removed from office if the ethics panel finds that he committed any wrongdoing. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
33: Secretary of State Antony Blinken spent a short but significant time in the corridor of the G20 summit in India with his Russian counterpart. NPR's Michelle Kalman reports those 10 minutes were the first such meeting since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine.
10: Russia says it was a meeting on the move, requested by Blinken. The secretary says he raised several topics with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov urging Russia to return to a key nuclear arms deal and release U.S. detainees. On Ukraine, Blinken says most countries at the Group of 20 meeting had a similar message.
11: End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace."
10: Russia and China refused to agree with other countries to language about the war. India's foreign minister, who hosted the meeting, says members agreed on other matters, from food and energy security to climate change. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
33: Tesla stock fell more than 6 percent today after an investor meeting Wednesday failed to impress. NPR's Camilo Dominowski explains the event didn't have a big reveal investors were hoping for.
26: A Tesla that costs around 25 k would make the brand more affordable for a lot more car shoppers. And Tesla did tell its investors about manufacturing techniques that might make a cheaper car possible, like building the front and back of the car separately. Here's Lars Moravi, the VP of Engineering.
24: Through this innovation and some of what my other engineering colleagues are going to talk to you about in the future, will reduce costs as much as 50 percent.
26: But Jessica Caldwell of Edmonds said the event was missing the cherry on top, like any glimpse of an actual car. And based on the stock performance since, Wall Street wanted the whole dessert. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. Overall
33: on Wall Street, though, the stocks moved the other way today. The Dow's up 341 points. The Nasdaq rose 83 points. You're listening to NPR
0: this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston I'm Lisa Mullins about half the Massachusetts doctors who responded to a survey say they have reduced clinical hours or will cut back on them soon 25 percent say they plan to leave medicine in the coming years 500 doctors were questioned by the Massachusetts Medical Society the survey finds burnout strain is greater among women doctors than men 63 percent of women physicians reported symptoms of burnout compared to 47 percent of male doctors Massachusetts Governor Maura Healy says she'll be hiring a new general manager of the MBTA soon. Healy said today her search team is nearly through with the completion of what she calls the thorough process. She says the position is just one of the T's needs.
10: We need to spend time building up a whole leadership team at the T, as well as finding uh, workers for the hundreds and hundreds of positions that are currently open right now.
0: The MBTA has faced a series of problems, including derailments, service disruptions and the dragging death of a passenger who got trapped in a subway car door. Former General Manager Steve Poftak resigned at the end of the Baker administration. A southern New England addiction treatment center has been shut down and its CEO is under arrest on fraud charges. Recovery Connection Centers of America operated 15 facilities in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Prosecutors say the company billed insurers for more services than it actually provided to people receiving treatment. The company had 1,600 clients. More than half were from Rhode Island, where federal charges were brought today. The man considered to be the first person killed in the Boston Massacre will be honored on the anniversary of the lethal riot that sparked the American Revolution. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu signed the proclamation for Crispus Attucks. Attucks was a native and African descent, but Wu points out historical records have portrayed Attucks as a white man.
23: The first person to give his life in the American Revolution was a black, indigenous man. It's a truth that people of color have always played a leading role in our nation's pursuit of freedom and justice from the very beginning and continuing to this day.
0: Addicts will be remembered Sunday, March 5th, the day of the Boston Massacre in 1770. In sports, the Bruins' David Posternak is now the highest-paid player in team history. The Bruins announced today they've reached an agreement with their star forward on a $90 million contract over eight years. The 26-year-old posternak says during negotiations he was motivated by his desire to play his entire career in
31: Boston. To play your career in one one team, and that's definitely uh, what was stuck in my head, you know. Uh, I'm, you know, honored and, and uh, happy that, that uh, you know, I'm staying here.
0: Basternak is currently the second leading scorer in the league with 42 goals. In the forecast, clouds should clear out. Wind should pick up tonight. Temperatures falling to about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, back to the gray skies, about 40 degrees for a high. Could get a mix of rain and snow tomorrow night into Saturday. Maybe one to three inches of snow left behind. Should be windy during the day Saturday. Lots of clouds, maybe some more rain and snow. Highs about 38. And then Sunday, 41 degrees with partial sunshine. This is WBUR. It's 507.
22: WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Any day now, President Biden is expected to use his veto authority for the first time. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says a measure passed by both the House and Senate to roll back a Biden administration financial regulation is bad for retirees.
5: This is unacceptable to the president, and that is why he will veto this bill if it does come to his desk.
8: All right. And White House correspondent Tier McKeith joins us now with some context to all of this. Hey, Tam. Hey. So, OK, President Biden is more than two years into his term, and this is only his first veto. Remind us why it has taken this long.
17: It's pretty simple for the first two years in office. Democrats control both the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. And it is quite rare for the party in power to pass legislation that a president from their own party (laughs) doesn't agree with. Right Uh, Now, though, you have split party control of Congress. And this is a measure that was passed by the Republican-controlled House to reverse a Biden administration rule. That rule would allow retirement plan advisors to make investment decisions, taking into consideration environmental, social, and corporate governance factors, something commonly known as ESG, and it has been increasingly popular uh, at the major investment firms. Mm -hmm. uh, But Republicans call it woke investing.
8: Wait, but why did the Senate, which is still controlled by Democrats, why did the Senate even take this up? The
17: answer is the Congressional Review Act, Uh, and that is something that makes it easy for Congress to weigh in on and potentially block regulations that haven't gone into effect yet. Um, And that's what this is all about, Congress disapproving of a Biden administration regulation. And in this case, two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester of Montana, joined the Republicans in passing it. Uh, They are both up for reelection in 2024 in red states. Sarah is a professor of political science at George Washington University, and I spoke with her.
18: And so there really wasn't any stopping the Republican minority in the Senate here, so long as they attracted those two Democratic votes to join them to propel this bill to Biden for signature or veto.
17: And veto, it will be.
8: Veto, it will be. So what does this mean about the chances of more vetoes from President Biden going forward? I mean, now that Republicans control the House.
17: Well, there aren't a ton of bills that can get a fast track to the president's desk like this. So if Republicans can find more new regulations that they want to repeal and can get a few Democrats to support it, then this could potentially happen again. Uh, Binder says you may uh, see a trickle of vetoes from Biden, but don't expect the floodgates to open up. And part of that is just that Congress isn't passing a lot of legislation because it is really hard to do anything with split party control. Uh, In speeches, President Biden has issued a lot of veto threats, uh, but against proposals that are highly unlikely to ever get to his desk because Democrats control the Senate. Things like repealing Social Security and Medicare or uh, a national ban on abortion.
8: Exactly. So let me ask you this. How does Biden compare to other presidents in terms of his use of the veto pen so far.
17: And I will say that that's a turn of phrase. It's not an actual special pin. No way. Yeah. The president uh, doesn't (laughs) sign the bill uh, and he then sends a formal veto message back to Congress. But on to your question. I went back to President Carter uh, and and it's a real mixed bag. Carter, Reagan and the first President Bush all vetoed a bill in their first year in office. Obama did, too. But for Presidents Clinton, Trump and now Biden, it didn't happen until after their party took a shellacking in the first (laughs) midterm election election of their presidency.
8: That is NPR's Tamara Keith. Thank you, Tam.
17: You're welcome. A year
9: after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Russian cyber war many had expected has not quite materialized. But that doesn't mean it hasn't been a key piece of the story. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin spoke with over a dozen intelligence analysts who've studied the role that cyber weapons have played
30: in the conflict and how those lessons might be applied to future wars. On a recent chilly winter afternoon, I made my way to DuPont Circle to visit the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. I met there with a contemplative man wearing glasses and a hoodie.
34: So my name is Juan Andres Herrero Sade. Most people call me Jags because that's a mouthful.
30: Juan, or Jags, has been following Russian hackers for years. His rolled-up sleeves reveal tattooed lines of digital code. He remembers the confusing, tense days before the invasion. Because for the cybersecurity community, that's when the war really began.
34: The cybersecurity space, the threat intelligence space, was involved in analyzing the components of the Russian invasion... Hours before other people had even accepted that the invasion was happening, I mean...
30: Jags, who's with the cybersecurity firm Sentinel-1, speaks quickly and eagerly about that time, full of technical detail and personal memories. I
34: remember being in a painfully boring um, corporate, you know, conference, some sales kickoff event. And um, I believe colleagues just posted, like, a malware hash on Twitter. And it just changed... The rest of our day completely. My whole team, we were, you know, ordering Chinese food in some room somewhere until 6 o'clock in the morning, analyzing malware.
30: Those early days were fraught. Russia was creating chaos in cyberspace. But they didn't shut down whole cities with cyber attacks. And a whole year later, that remains the case. So has cyber really been important if the ultimate impact has been limited? Brad Smith, the vice chair and president of Microsoft,
12: says yes.
4: The interesting thing about a cyber attack is it's invisible to the naked eye. If it succeeds, everybody reads about it because a network stopped operating. But when we detect it and when we disrupt it, when we stop it, it's invisible to the world.
30: Microsoft is one of many who have worked to help defend Ukraine. Speaking of defense, that's the common theme I heard in almost every conversation I had about the role of cyber in the war a year on.
4: But the reality is, thanks in part to the resilience of Ukraine and the advance in cybersecurity technology, the first year of this war, at least, defense has proven to be far stronger than offense when it comes to attacks in cyberspace.
30: Resilience. That means Ukraine hasn't always kept the Russians out of their systems. But they found smart ways to recover, like backing up their files and servers overseas or moving things to the cloud. Matt Olney has been working with Ukrainian partners for years. He's with the cybersecurity firm Cisco Talos.
29: Any country that feels that it has vulnerabilities or potential targets in the cyber front that they're concerned about should really look at what Ukraine has done to harden their environments. Taiwan,
30: preparing for a Chinese invasion, comes to mind. Part of the reason Ukraine is so prepared is because they've had years to strengthen their defenses.
29: Yeah, I mean, from the cyber front, um, Ukraine had been experiencing pretty substantial attacks from Russia for years before this.
30: That includes attacks against the power grid in 2015 and 2016 as well as a nasty virus in 2017 aimed at Ukrainian businesses that spilled out and hit targets around the world. But at the same time, throughout this war, people are dying. Russia's blowing up critical infrastructure instead of hacking it.
26: I think the thing to like keep in mind, right, is that a war never goes offline, and we can. You know, the frontline defenders in Ukraine, they, they don't go offline.
30: Gabby Ronconi is a threat intelligence researcher at Google's cybersecurity firm Mandiant. She's found the work fascinating and says there's a lot to learn about Russian tactics, but she tries to keep it in perspective.
26: I can look at malware in my cozy home office with a mug of tea, but there are Ukrainian defenders that are trying to defend networks and stop intrusions while, you know, there are rolling blackouts or there are air raid sirens.
30: Jags, the researcher I met in downtown D.C., explained his feelings about the so-called cyber war this way.
34: There are folks that seem almost disappointed not to have seen a greater presence of cyber uh, during war. I think that is more us tussling with the figments of our imaginations, the way that, you know, when we talk about AI, everybody wants to talk about Skynet. They don't want to talk about structural unemployment.
30: In the middle of a chaotic war, it's hard to make sense of things. What the actual impact will be of any one tactic, including cyber. That's something Jags really wonders about.
34: If if I'm completely honest, I think we know next to nothing. I have more questions than I have answers.
30: We both sit with that thought on a normal, peaceful day in Washington. We know that Russia launched wiper attacks against Ukrainian businesses and government agencies. But what did they wipe?
34: We can't assess... Which of these were genuinely, deeply impactful, meaningful, maybe irrecoverable, maybe unforgivable in their effects uh, versus temporary inconveniences?
30: As the war in Ukraine rages on, it could take years to know any of the answers. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News.
8: The man who brought a percussive soundtrack to the streets of San Francisco has died. Larry Hunt, who called himself the Bucket Man, performed downtown
9: for decades, drumming on five gallon buckets, pots and pans, and a cowbell,
8: all the while flashing big smiles at passersby. Hunt grew up in Kansas before making his way to the San Francisco Bay Area. Despite a lot of noise complaints over the years and police confiscating his kit on at least one occasion, he kept on drumming. And he was a showman, too. He would light his drumsticks on fire and keep the beat going before extinguishing the flames in his mouth. Hunt's fame as a busker even brought him a film cameo in the 2006 Will Smith movie The Pursuit of Happiness. And he also got an invitation to give a TEDx- in 2012
14: my music and my
4: happiness and i'm always happy i'm hurting inside but outside i'm happy because i'm making y'all have it with a smile on your face so remember that be happy till you see another day be strong
9: larry hunt the bucket man died last week he was 64.
8: You are listening to All Things Considered
0: from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, Moderna's vaccine gambit. The company said people without insurance will be able to get its COVID vaccine at no cost after the U.S. government bows out. But patients will have to use Moderna's assistance program, considered cumbersome. These stories and much more coming up on WBUR.
7: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, enhancing the lives of children, youth, adults, and families through transformative care and supports. ElliottCHS.org. And Leslie University. Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Leslie University. Get started at leslie.edu.
0: Checking business news uh, uh, today, an upsweep for stocks. The Dow rose more than 1%, or 342 points, to close at 33,004. SP and p and NASDAQ both gained about three-quarters of a percent. The S&P finished the session at 39.81. The NASDAQ closed at 11,463. The average price of heating oil in Massachusetts is dropping. The State Department of Energy Resources survey just released shows the average price at $4.24 a gallon. That's three cents lower than it was last week, still 24 cents higher than this same time last year. In the forecast, clouds should clear out tonight. Winds picking up, temperatures should fall to about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, back to the heavy cover of clouds, about 40 degrees for a high. This is WBUR. It's 520.
23: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. And from the ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org.
8: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm
9: Juana Summers. Closing arguments have ended in the trial of Alex Murdoch, who is charged with the murders of his wife, Margaret, and his son, Paul. Jury deliberations are now underway. Over six weeks of testimony, jurors heard from more than 70 witnesses from both the prosecution and defense, which were also broadcast live from inside the courtroom. The case has been a regular fixture on cable news. There have been podcasts about it. And it's also the subject of two popular documentary series on Netflix and HBO. Max, we wanted to take some time to explore why so many people are drawn to stories like this one. To do that, we called up Neil Baer. He was the executive producer for Law & Order SVU for 10 seasons, and he joins us now. Hi there.
35: Hello. Nice to be here.
9: Thanks for joining us. So... I wanna start by talking specifically about the Murdoch case. This is a story, of course, about real loss of lives, but it is also one that has captivated audiences across the United States. So I'm curious, why do you think there is? Are there specific things about this case that you think have really hooked people?
35: Sure, it's, it's very much like SVU in the sense that it has human depravity, it has families, it has greed, it has wealth, it has comeuppance, it has all the things in life that are exciting that we don't experience ourselves, hopefully, um, but we're drawn to it. We're drawn to these kinds of people and what makes them tick, what made them do it. How did they get into so much trouble that they would turn to do such terrible, terrible things? You know, also the audience is really attached to the science of the forensics. So they, they want to know like, everything about the DNA, everything about transfer of evidence. So it's a mixture of the evidence, the science, and of course, human greed and and a very, very wealthy old family from South Carolina, all the elements that make for a really kind of interesting, messy story.
9: I'd love to just ask you for your thoughts about the proliferation of true crime media today. I mean, this case already has several documentary series about it and there could be more in the works the genres really exploded
35: right well also i think people like to have endings and they like to have justice i think that's been a big big selling point for law and order special victims unit for year 24 that it's been on that we get the bad guys and so i think that that's a real strong pull particularly in these very stormy times where we don't know right from wrong, and we're fighting with one another. We want clear heroes, and we want victims to find justice and to be saved.
9: I mean, given the fact that there are so many crime shows and crime franchises and the fact that they're all so incredibly successful, do you think that primes us to approach real cases in some ways as entertainment?
35: Yes, I think I think that there is uh, probably... Um, a desensitization that happens when we see so much crime. Maybe it makes us feel in some ways safer um, that we can be listening to it within the safety of our own homes. But on the other hand, we don't know who's carrying a gun in many places now in the United States. So it's a very scary place to be. And so I think these shows, even though we travel and promote crime, we, we, at least at SVU, solved the case, and the bad guy uh, or bad woman got their comeuppance and, and justice was served. So it's a, it's a kind of um, you know, a catch-22. We're getting more and more because I think there's more and more fear. So we look to these programs to give us some, some sustenance and some hope, and yet in and of themselves that they probably promote more fear.
9: Neil Bayer is the former executive producer
8: for Law & Order SVU. Thank you so much. Thank you. The third season of the highly anticipated Star Wars series The Mandalorian debuted Wednesday on Disney+. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says the season's slow start reveals a show that's facing one of its most important challenges yet.
3: The first two episodes of The Mandalorian's new season reveal a common malady I've noticed among streaming TV series. I call it TSD, or table-setting disease. This is what happens when an episode spends too much time and energy putting characters in place to tell the season's real story. Like this moment, which features our hero, superheroic fighter the Mandalorian, played by Pedro Pascal. He is ostracized from his people for a decision he made last season as described by a Mandalorian leader known as the Armorer.
6: You have removed your helmet. What's worse, you did so of your own free will. You are no longer Mandalorian.
22: The Creed teaches us of redemption.
18: Redemption is no longer possible since the destruction of our homeworld.
3: But the Mandalorian, whose name is Din Djarin, has a workaround.
22: If I visit the planet and I can bring you proof that I have bathed in the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore, then by Creed, the decree of exile will be lifted and I would be redeemed. This is the
20: way.
3: Just like that, our Mandalorian has a new quest. Fans of the show may remember his old quest ended last season, when the show offered a scene some fans have dreamed about since the Mandalorian debuted more than three years ago. A DH aged Mark Hamill showed up playing Luke Skywalker to save a young being the Mandalorian had been protecting, known as The Child. Fans called him Baby Yoda. He is strong with the Force, but talent without training is nothing. I will give my life to protect the child, but he will not be safe until he masters his abilities. So how does the child, whose name is Grogu, by the way, wind up back with the Mandalorian? Well, that was covered in the last two and a half episodes of another Star Wars TV show on Disney Plus called The Book of Boba Fett. Grogu basically decided to stop his Jedi training and rejoin the Mandalorian. As part of all this table-setting, we see the Mandalorian revisit old allies, including Bo-Katan, played by Katie Sakoff, a Mandalorian leader who thinks his plan to bathe in waters to find redemption is a little uh, nonsensical.
18: You are a fool. There's nothing magic about the minds of
5: Mandalore. They supplied Beskar ore to our ancestors, and the rest is superstition. That planet has been ravaged... And poisoned.
22: You said that the curse was a lie. Make up your mind.
13: There's nothing left.
3: Let's just say by the second episode, she changes her tone. Still, all this table setting and legend building, punctuated by action sequences like fighting monsters and gunfights, sets up a new quest which feels decidedly less important than the show's original motivating mission. One of my prescriptions for great TV is simple, show, don't tell, and there are way too many moments where the characters here tell us things they should show us. If The Mandalorian wants to keep setting the pace as the Star Wars series that's recalibrated the franchise, they're going to have to pick up the pace a bit in future episodes, because there's only so much table setting you can do before people expect a really great meal. I'm Eric Deggins.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should have a relatively clear and dry night tonight. Strong winds. Temperatures about 29. Clouds gathering again tomorrow. Highs about 40. Tomorrow night, some snow showers amounting to about 1 to 3 inches on the ground by Saturday morning. Blustery winds as well. Saturday's looking sloppy. Rain and snow mixing it up. Highs about 38. Strong winds once again. Sunday should bring back some sunshine with highs near 40. This is WBUR. The time is 5.30.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com.
26: The Saudi government has loosened controls on that country's cultural life. One critic says the change is a calculated tactic by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman.
5: If I entertain my population, they won't mind
26: that it's coming with this huge price on their safety, on their freedom, on their fundamental human rights. Do these cultural freedoms come at the cost of other liberties? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. Secretary of State met briefly with his Russian counterpart today during the G-20 summit in India. It was the first meeting between Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Sergei Lavrov since Russia invaded Ukraine one year ago. Officials say the pair spoke for less than 10 minutes on the sidelines. Secretary Blinken, speaking to reporters afterwards, says China's aid to Russian troops in Ukraine further strains U.S. relations. Were China to engage in material lethal
11: support, for Russia's aggression, war uh, were to engage in the systematic evasion of
27: sanctions uh, to help Russia, that would be a serious problem for uh, for our countries. Russia's Lavrov, meanwhile, mocked U.S. threats against China, which presented a peace plan for Ukraine that's been dismissed by Western allies. Secretary Blinken reiterated that West uh, that Washington rather is prepared to support Ukraine's defense, as long as it takes. The Biden administration is unveiling its national cybersecurity strategy. The White House cyber director says the focus is on shifting the burden and expectation that average folks can defend their own computer systems. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin explains.
30: The acting national cyber director, Kemba Walden, is revealing details about the Biden administration's new plan for approaching cybersecurity. During a speech in downtown Washington, D.C., she said the White House is focused on ramping up offensive activity against bad actors in cyberspace defending critical infrastructure, and working with international partners. Walden says the White House especially wants to change the expectation that average people defend their own systems from cyber attacks.
8: Every American should be able to benefit from the benefits of cyberspace, but every American should not have the same responsibility to keep us all secure.
30: That role should fall to companies and the government, she said. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News.
27: And you're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts lawmakers are working to make up for the loss of federal funding for the SNAP program that has helped people buy food during the pandemic. The Extra Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits end today. The Senate Ways and Means Committee is taking up a supplemental budget the House passed. It provides $130 million in state funding to cover about 40% of the expiring benefits. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston says policymakers, will likely need to raise interest rates even higher to get inflation under control. Susan Collins believes the rates need to be higher for a longer period of time in order to be effective.
21: It takes a while for the effects of
0: tighter financial conditions to um, work through the economy and to address what has been a gap between demand and supply.
13: um, And that's what has been causing pressures for wages and for prices
0: and the high inflation. Collins made the comments this week in Vermont. She was there to meet business owners and community leaders to gather information to help the Fed set monetary policies. She is not currently a voting member of the Fed's board that sets interest rates. Officials in Arlington want to ban the use of certain pesticides to kill rodents. They're asking the state legislature for the authority to ban so-called second-generation anticoagulant rat poisons. This week, a bald eagle named M.K. died after it was found in the Arlington Cemetery. It was severely ill after it ate a rodent that had ingested rat poison. Arlington Select Board Chair Len Diggins says there are other ways to control rodents without also killing predators that eat rodents.
19: There are alternatives. I I think there's dry ice traps, mean, and so so they may not be as efficient mean as the um, second generation anticoagulants. But I think, as with almost everything, they're trade-off.
0: Diggins is ultimately hoping for a statewide ban on these pesticides. This traffic note, the eastbound off-ramp from the Mass Turnpike to Seaport Congress Street will close tonight at 9. It won't reopen until 5 tomorrow morning. That's to accommodate nearby building construction. Also, the exit on 93 North to the Mass Pike Eastbound and the South Boston Seaport will be reduced to one lane. Should have mainly clear skies tonight. Windy, down around 30. Tomorrow, back to the gray skies. Highs about 40 degrees. A wintry mix tomorrow night of snow and rain. Maybe leaving one to three inches on the ground when you wake up Saturday. Could have snow and rain taking turns Saturday. Wild winds. A little bit more snow accumulation, but not much. Highs about 38. And then. And for the second half of the weekend, looking partly sunny, highs about 41. If enough clouds clear out where you are, you could get a chance to see Jupiter and Venus looking like two gleaming diamonds right by each other in the sky. Just look west right after sunset, which is just about now. It's 535.
23: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com and from the listeners who support this NPR
8: station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. A year ago,
9: there was big news in a major terrorism case. Settlement talks were underway for the five men accused in the 9-11 attacks. Plea deals could finally bring the case to a close, but now those talks are in limbo. Sasha Pfeiffer of NPR's investigations team is here to explain that holdup. Hey there. Hey, Juana. All right, Sasha,
5: let's just get to it. Why the delay here? Well, it is not for lack of trying to reach a deal. The 9-11 judge has canceled all public hearings in this case for the past year so lawyers can focus on negotiating. The goal is to have Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged 9-11 mastermind, and his four co-defendants plead guilty in return for up to life in prison. But there are key issues only the Biden administration can answer, like where would these men serve their sentences and what health care would they receive? Because some of them have injuries from torture. The administration has not provided answers yet, and that's created an impasse. When I asked one Guantanamo defense attorney, Aka Pradhan, what the sticking points are, this is how she put it.
30: From our end, nothing at all. I mean, we're, we're just waiting, really, until we get a go-ahead, that the agencies even want to continue with plea negotiations. Everything is stuck.
9: So again, these settlement negotiations, they started a year ago. Should it take that long to answer questions like where
5: these men might serve their sentences? You know, some people say everything involving Guantanamo moves slowly, and Gitmo is such a political minefield that most presidents have not wanted to expend much political capital on it. But one person who says President Biden should be speeding up the process is Scott Ream. He runs the Washington, D.C. office of the Center for Victims of Torture.
28: There's no reason after 10-plus months that these questions couldn't and shouldn't be answered by the higher-ups in the administration.
5: For now though, Juana, Biden's focus at Guantanamo seems to be releasing prisoners who have already been cleared to leave. That's the status of more than half of the 32 men still being held there. In the past month alone, three inmates cleared for release have been let go. These are prisoners not related to the 9-11 case. These are so-called forever prisoners who have been held for up to 20 years without ever being criminally charged. Some were cleared years ago for release and are no longer considered a security threat. So Biden has been reducing Guantanamo's prison population by finding other countries to take these clear prisoners. But he has been publicly silent about the 9-11 settlement talks. Okay, so that's the White House. But what else can you tell us about political support for these proposed plea deals? It's mixed. Some Republicans vehemently want the 9-11 defendants put on trial and executed. But Guantanamo has become so notorious for dysfunction and gridlock that even their opposition to plea deals seems to be softening. And many people think a settlement is the only solution at this point. Here's Scott Rehm again.
28: The 9-11 case is not going to trial in the military commissions. It is not remotely close to that, and it never will be.
5: Okay, and
9: what about the relatives of 9-11 victims? Is there any consensus among them on how they feel?
5: It's also mixed. One person I spoke with has a very pragmatic view. His name is Glenn Morgan. His father died in the World Trade Center collapse, and he wants the 9-11 defendants to get the death penalty, but he also does not want them to die in prison without being found guilty, so he would support a settlement. Here's Morgan.
25: It really would be sad if people like my mother die without seeing her husband's killers get prosecuted. And shame on us if we as Americans or our politicians can't get out of our own way.
5: But Juana, the U.S. Defense Department seems to be lowering expectations for a quick resolution of the 9-11 case. It told me that settlement talks are expected to continue for, quote, some time. Sasha Pfeiffer of NPR's investigations team. Thank you. You're welcome.
8: Once the government's COVID vaccine supply runs out, the shots will be available on the commercial market, but they won't be cheap. And facing political pressure, Moderna announced a free shot program for those without insurance. But NPR pharmaceuticals correspondent Sidney Lupkin reports on how these programs can be cumbersome
26: and give drug makers cover to keep their prices high. Moderna announced a patient assistance program right as pressure on Capitol Hill was ramping up over the price it plans to charge for its COVID-19 vaccine. The federal government paid around $10 billion to develop and purchase Moderna's vaccine as part of Operation Warp Speed. Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent now at the helm of the Senate Help Committee, said this on the Senate floor last month.
36: How has the CEO thanked the taxpayers of America? for the huge profits that Moderna has experienced and for the incredible wealth that he and his other executives have experienced. Well, he is thanking them by proposing to quadruple the price of the COVID vaccine to about $130 once the government stockpile runs out.
26: The help committee will question Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell in a few weeks. The company says it will provide the vaccines to uninsured or underinsured patients at no cost. This patient assistance program is set to begin in May. Moderna's move is politically savvy, says Larry Levitt, executive vice president for health policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation.
24: This gives Bansel a talking point when he appears before Bernie Sanders. I think it, it blunts the criticism, but I think there will still be plenty of criticism.
26: Patient assistance programs have long been part of the drug industry playbook. They allow companies to maintain high prices while diffusing some of the criticism. But patients have to jump through hoops to get free or discounted pharmaceutical products. Claire Hannon, head of the Association of Immunization Managers, says paperwork and red tape can be a real problem. I think people are willing to
15: push through that if they they need to get a drug. But with the vaccine, You really have to make that
18: accessible and convenient for people to to get it.
26: If they're not sick, the urgency just isn't the same. Patients who are taking expensive drugs for cancer treatment or chronic conditions may face hundreds or thousands of dollars in drug costs over time, so it's worth it to go through even a complicated application process. But if it's not easy to apply for Moderna's free vaccines, people could decide not to bother, says Levitt.
20: We are having trouble getting
24: people vaccinated and boosted, and people who are uninsured are the the least likely to be vaccinated. So this is already a very hard-to-reach group, and it's going to get
29: harder even with this uh, patient assistance program.
26: Ultimately, it's better than nothing. But he says he has no doubt uninsured people will get vaccinated at lower rates in the future. I asked CVS and Walgreens whether they had plans to help patients navigate the Moderna patient assistance program, since a lot of people get vaccinated at pharmacies. CVS said it didn't have anything to share right now. Walgreens did not respond. Hannon says for local clinics and health departments to be able to participate, there are two obstacles. Buying the vaccine so it's there when patients ask for it, and having staff to handle paperwork.
15: Purchasing that initial stock can be a challenge if they don't have vaccines, so hopefully Moderna is willing to um, provide
26: that. It's not a surprise that the vaccine's price is about to go up. The time for the government to drive a hard bargain on future pricing would have been in 2020, when Operation Warp Speed was negotiating vaccine development and purchase contracts with drug makers, including Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and others. Jamie Love of Knowledge Ecology International says the government didn't do a great job.
20: It was all short-term thinking.
32: And it came
33: out of a period when the government was also kind of reluctant to even say anything about prices.
26: And that set the stage for what we're seeing now, he says. Sydney Lupkin, NPR News.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. One of the architects of modern jazz has died. Tenor saxophonist and composer Wayne Shorter died this morning at the age of 89, according to his publicist. Shorter had a profound influence on jazz and pop music, and his music lineage stretched from Art Blakey to Miles Davis and from Steely Dan to Joni Mitchell. NPR's Felix Contreras has this appreciation.
4: For fellow musicians and fans alike, Wayne Shorter was as much a philosopher as he was a jazz musician, dispensing short zen-like parables in both words and through his horn.
14: For me, the word jazz means I dare you. If I relied on just music as being my life. I have to look at music as a one drop in the ocean of life. Jazz shouldn't have any mandates. Jazz is not supposed to be something that you're required to sound like jazz.
4: That was Wayne Shorter from an interview with NPR in 2013. The common thread weaving those ideas together is an intense curiosity that began during his childhood in Newark, New Jersey. He carried it with him at NYU and then into the band that brought him to the attention of the jazz world, Art Blakey's Jazz Messenger. Then, Wayne Shorter joined a band that reshaped the sound of small group jazz, the Miles Davis Quintet. His years with Davis, as well as a series of solo albums, burnished Shorter's reputation as a composer. Then, Shorter co-founded a group that carried him to an even wider audience, Weather Report. It became the best-known jazz rock band of the late 1970s. The latter part of Wayne Shorter's life was marked by over four decades of devotion to Nichiren Buddhism, It was
14: seemingly perfectly suited for an expansive mind like Shorter's. I was hearing about Buddhism, but then I started to look into it. I started to open up, find out what was going on in the rest of the world instead of the West.
4: Those teachings influenced the ideas he applied to jazz at the start of the new millennium, as he handpicked a group of younger musicians to form the Wayne Shorter Quartet. His former bandmate, Herbie Hancock, would compare it to their work together with Miles Davis and call the Wayne Shorter Quartet the best small group in jazz history. For Wayne Shorter, that connection to the moment that is so much a part of jazz improvisation was also a lesson of Buddhism.
14: We have a phrase, it's honnim-yo. It means from this moment forward is the first day of my life. Put hundred percent into the moment that you're in because the present moment is the only time is when you can change the past and the future.
4: The essence of jazz wrapped in Buddhist philosophy. One final lesson from Wayne Shorter. Félix Contreras, NPR News.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. You're part of the WBUR community, which is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30. Details at WBUR.org slash open meetings.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com.
0: In the forecast, relatively clear and dry tonight. Strong winds, temperatures about 29. Clouds should gather again tomorrow. Highs about 40. Tomorrow night, snow showers amounting to about 1 to 3 inches on the ground by Saturday morning. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The time
21: is 5.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Sharing Sherpa with Robert Beer on view now. Plan your visit at pem.org.
10: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, celebrity chef Tiffany Faison is in Studio 2. We'll talk about the powerful women in her life, in the culinary world, and beyond. Then, she sticks with us for our latest brewed in mass with female-owned breweries in the state. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang. On August 20th, 1972, Stax Records brought its artists to Los Angeles for a landmark concert. The performance supported the rebuilding of the Watts community in the wake of uprisings sparked by police brutality and longstanding racial injustice. Hey
10: boy, we're drifting apart
8: That was singer Carla Thomas, just one of dozens who performed that day. To commemorate the event, a 1973 documentary has been re-released in theaters, along with a box set. As Allison McCabe reports, Watt Stacks was about more than just music.
31: To understand Watt Stacks, you have to rewind to August 1965. Carla Thomas was performing at a Stacks review show at the legendary 5-4 Ballroom in Watts, Los Angeles. After the show, she met a teenage fan, Jackie Jaquette, who invited Thomas to dinner. The next day, Thomas says they took in the sights.
18: We went to this little shopping center, and there was a little office there where kids were being taught passive resistance, the same type of training that the Freedom Riders had to take.
31: Jaquette explained why.
18: What she told me when we got ready to leave was, they are killing young black guys.
31: They were the police. Days later, the arrest of 21-year-old Marquette Fry brought the community to a breaking point, sparking six days of uprisings, leaving dozens dead, thousands injured, and millions of dollars in property damage. News coverage reinforced a distorted image of Watts, and by extension, Black America.
36: Nearly 3,000 were arrested, and authorities had to open abandoned jails to house those netted by the police. It took the appearance of 14,000 troops to bring an end to what both Negro and white leaders called Insurrection by Hoodlums.
31: The Watts Summer Festival, launched on the first anniversary of the uprisings, helped to rebuild the community. In its seventh year, music writer Rob Bowman says Stax Records took it to a new level.
25: Stax, as the seat of Southern Soul Music, sold tons of product in the South, the Midwest, you know, up through Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit. They did not do nearly as well on the West Coast.
31: To expand its reach, Stax had established a satellite office in L.A. But Bowman says label co-owner Al Bell had a greater ambition.
25: It's also where this company was dealing with black expressive culture and that it should have and it did have a responsibility to the community.
31: The label booked the L.A. Memorial Coliseum and enlisted dozens of its artists for a benefit concert to close the 1972 Watts Summer Festival. The show was advertised on door hangers, billboards and even airplane banners. Al Bell says he wanted the community to know that Wattstacks was about more than entertainment. It
36: was a celebration of the African American experience and a testament to the transformative power of music.
31: The Black gathering was second in size only to Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 March on Washington. I am somebody. Built as the living word, a soulful expression of the black experience, the Reverend Jesse Jackson's litany set the tone.
36: I may be on welfare, but I am
31: somebody. Then Kim Weston performed Lift Every Voice and Sing, also known as the Black National Anthem. What followed was seven hours of gospel, rhythm and blues, funk and soul, featuring artists such as the Staple Singers, Isaac Hayes, the Bar Kays, Carla Thomas, and Rufus Thomas, who invited the audience to get on up. You put your left
4: arm up, and
31: Bell says pricing the tickets at only a dollar apiece meant everyone could experience the power of music to inspire, heal, and bring people together.
36: It was like a family reunion. I mean, it was like a church service. The same kind of feelings and and, and interactions took place there that take place in your church services on Sunday or Wednesday night.
31: The event raised over $70,000 to support causes, including the Watts Summer Festival, Sickle Cell Disease Research, and the Watts Labor Community Action Committee. A double album of concert highlights sold more than a half million copies within weeks of its release. But Bell says he wanted to take the message further, including to white audiences.
32: Many
36: of them in this country, if they saw two of us together, they would be afraid of us because of how we were viewed. And that same attitude was put into our heads you got to be careful because you're going to intimidate them and create a problem.
31: So Bell had Wattstacks filmed for a documentary.
36: We wanted us to see ourselves and the way we are to ourselves. And we wanted white America to see us as we truly are.
31: Collaborating with producers David Wolper and Larry Shaw and director Mel Stewart, Bell recruited a mostly black camera crew at a time when opportunities in Hollywood were limited to none. Instead of interviewing pundits, they return to Watts and film the emotions singing in a church.
5: Wake up, Jesus!
31: A young Richard Pryor providing an edgy social commentary.
20: California is a real state because they have laws for pedestrians. You know, like you cross the street, they have laws for pedestrians, but they don't have laws for people at night when cops accidentally shoot people.
31: And the filmmakers captured the viewpoints of folks in barbershops, on street corners, and in diners. I can go anywhere in the United States of
33: America and see another black man and give him a power shake and, and there's uh-huh. unity there. There was a beauty there that I could communicate with this yeah. brother.
31: Interspersed with the concert footage, these vignettes illustrated struggle, resilience, and joy. The 1973 Wattstacks documentary was nominated for a Golden Globe. In 2020, it was added to the National Film Registry. Although the fight for racial equality is ongoing, says Bell, so is the hope for a better future that Wattstax envisioned a half-century ago.
36: And that 112,000 people in the stands all of the artists that were there and the musicians, the workers at the Coliseum, and everybody that we interacted with in putting that event together and putting it on. There was one spirit and attitude that prevailed. I
16: know place. Oh, ain't nobody
30: place. No. It was the
31: spirit of love.
30: Ain't no smiling faces.
31: Huh? In PR News, I'm Allison McCabe. Mm-hmm. Help
30: me, come on, come on. Somebody help me now. i yeah, 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 Help me all, yeah. Help me out
9: You're listening to All Things Considered.
23: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass., where, since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com.
8: I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amer. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Experts thought school attendance would rebound by this year, but districts across the US are still seeing chronic absenteeism by students.
18: It's not too late to identify the kids struggling in the first semester and invest in outreach. You still have enough time to improve attendance.
0: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. How student absences are affecting education coming up. Precious Little has been written about a Hungarian-born woman who rose in the ranks in Washington to become a top advisor to several American presidents. A high school history teacher in Westford wanted to know more about Anna Rosenberg, so he scoured the archives.
32: There was handwritten letters from Harry Truman, President Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson. It was just on and on. It was a treasure trove of history.
0: All written to Anna.
32: Yes, yes.
0: Now that teacher has written her biography. It's 601.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden told Senate Democrats today he is splitting with the party and will not exercise his veto power on legislation that will block a new criminal code from taking effect in the nation's capital. More from NPR, Susan Davis.
9: Republicans are leading the effort in Congress to block a new D.C. crime law approved by the Democratic-led City Council earlier this year. Congress is using a fast-track process to block the law from taking effect. It's already passed the House and is on track to pass the Senate as soon as next week. While much of the new law is non-controversial, critics oppose provisions that would reduce maximum penalties for crimes like carjackings and expand rights to jury trials for certain misdemeanor offenses. Biden's decision not to use his veto power to side with local D.C. leaders will deliver Republicans a rare legislative victory and potentially help inoculate the president from charges that he's soft on crime ahead of his expected reelection bid. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington.
33: The EPA chose three sites in Ohio to send toxic waste from the East Palestine derailment. But as Ethan Sandweiss from Member Station WFIU reports, some of that waste is being shipped 400 miles away to a small town in Indiana. The landfill in Rochdale, Indiana is owned by waste management company Heritage Environmental
24: and some of the residents of the town are raising their objections. Facility site manager Eric Chris faced an angry crowd at a town hall Wednesday when he announced that three truckloads of waste had already arrived.
36: They were accepted today and they were dumped today.
19: (laughs) Company
24: spokespeople, local officials, and toxic materials experts say they're confident of the site's ability to handle the 2,000 tons of toxic waste they
33: expect to be stored there. For NPR News, I'm Ethan Sandweiss. A man accused of trying to bring explosive materials onto a plane flying out of Allentown, Pennsylvania this week has been denied bail. From member Station WLVR, Julene Abraham has more.
3: 40-year-old Mark Muffley was arrested on Monday after commercial firework powder, lithium batteries, and a butane lighter were discovered in his checked luggage at the Lehigh Valley Airport. At his bail hearing Thursday, Muffley's lawyer said he was just trying to light some fireworks off on a beach in Florida, which was where the plane was headed and that there was no built-in way for the explosives to detonate. The prosecutor said Muffley should have at least known better. The judge denied Muffley bail and ordered him to remain in U.S. Marshals' custody until his trial at a later date. For NPR News, I'm Julian Abraham in Allentown.
33: A number of major retailers, including Macy's and Best Buy, appear to be finally feeling the effects of the Federal Reserve's campaign to raise interest rates as it seeks to cool the economy. Macy's says today sales for the final three months of last year fell 4.6 percent. Best Buy sites fail, sales fall nearly 10 percent. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 341 points. You're listening to NPR. The case of disgraced South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdoch and whether he killed his wife and son is now in the hands of a jury. A defense lawyer for Murdoch in his closing statement saying state agents were so determined to get Murdoch they lied or misrepresented evidence and failed to consider any evidence that may have pointed to someone else. Earlier, a fifth juror was dismissed for talking about the case, leaving just one alternate ahead of the deliberations. A crew of four is on its way to the International Space Station after launching from Florida early this morning. From member station WMFE in Orlando, Brendan Burn has more.
3: The nine engines of SpaceX's Falcon rocket roared to life, lighting up the Florida sky and launching the multinational crew on a 25-hour trip to the ISS. An attempt to launch this mission earlier this week was waved off when mission managers discovered an issue with the rocket's ignition system. That problem was resolved, and the crew successfully blasted off from NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Once at the station, the members of the Crew-6 mission, two NASA astronauts, a Russian cosmonaut, and an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates, will spend up to six months on the ISS conducting research and experiments. They'll relieve the four people of the Crew-5 mission, which arrived last October.
33: That team is set to return to Earth in about a week. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. The Minnesota Senate has voted to make it harder for thieves to sell stolen catalytic converters, a crime that has skyrocketed across the country in recent years. Legislation will prohibit scrap metal dealers buying the devices not attached to a vehicle unless it has identifying markings such as a VIN number. The National Crime Bureau says thefts of pollution control devices have more than quadrupled since 2019. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. An addiction program in the region is facing federal charges of stealing millions of dollars from insurers to the detriment of substance use disorder patients. Recovery Connection Centers of America operated programs in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. WBR's Deborah Becker reports it served 1,600 patients.
6: Rhode Island U.S. Attorney Zachary Cunha says the charges come after a two-year-long investigation. His office alleges the company overbilled for the actual services it provided to addiction patients. He says the company billed public and private insurers for more therapy sessions than possibly could have been conducted.
4: Today's charges should serve notice that we're not going to stand by in the face of this kind of fraud that victimizes a vulnerable population by shortchanging them of critical help.
6: More than half of the center's patients are from Rhode Island. The company's CEO, Michael Breyer, was arrested at his home in Newton, Mass., this morning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Governor Maura Healy is on the road making her case for the $55.5 billion state budget she's proposing. Today, she addressed the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, and WBUR's Steve Brown was there.
11: Healy said the housing crisis, high cost of child care, and the hard time companies are having finding skilled workers threaten the state's ability to be competitive and affordable. She said her budget and tax reform package can help fix that. After her comments, Chamber President Jim Rooney praised the governor's
4: pitch. I think that many of the initiatives that are included in the budget and in the tax cut proposal have been priorities of the business community, you know, specifically capital gains, estate tax, but also some of the other more targeted tax initiatives like the um, early childhood education uh, and so forth.
11: Rooney says he is very concerned about competitiveness, noting other states have been actively trying to lure local companies away. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: The National Transportation Safety Board has begun to investigate this week's close call at Logan Airport. On Monday night, a Lear jet that had been ordered to stay on the runway instead was getting ready to take off. It nearly crossed into the path of a jet blue plane that was coming in for a landing. The jet blue plane had to abort its landing to avoid a collision. The Federal Aviation Administration has its own investigation underway. In the forecast, 41 degrees now relatively clear. Windy tonight, down around 30. Tomorrow, back to the gray skies. Highs about 40. A good dose of snow and rain tomorrow night. Could have about 1 to 3 inches of snow on the ground when you wake up on Saturday. Snow and rain during the day Saturday. Windy too, then partly sunny skies for Sunday.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Ten
9: minutes. That's how long Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with his Russian counterpart today on the sidelines of an international gathering in India. It was the first time the two have met in over a year, and Blinken says it was only enough time to repeat some key concerns about arms control, a U.S. prisoner in Russia, and the war in Ukraine. Many countries around the world are eager to see some sort of diplomatic solution to that war, but the U.S. is skeptical, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports.
10: INDIA DIDN'T WANT THE WAR IN UKRAINE TO DOMINATE THE G-20 FOREIGN MINISTERS MEETING, BUT SECRETARY OF STATE ANTONY BLINKEN SAYS RUSSIA'S ACTIONS HAVE HAD RIPPLE EFFECTS AROUND THE GLOBE.
11: EVERY G-20 MEMBER AND VIRTUALLY EVERY COUNTRY PERIOD CONTINUES TO BEAR THE COSTS OF RUSSIA'S WAR OF AGGRESSION, A WAR THAT PRESIDENT PUTIN COULD END TOMORROW, if he chose to do so.
10: He says the U.S. wants a, quote, just and durable peace, and that means Russia has to pull out of Ukraine. But given that Russian President Vladimir Putin has failed to meet his objectives in Ukraine, he shows no signs he will walk away from the territorial gains he's made. And the Kremlin leader is still sounding rather confident, says Maria Snegovaya of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
12: He's doing well. He's quite confident that Russia is uh, managing this conflict and Russia has the capacity to sustain it for a while as uh, the Western resources and Ukraine resilience, from his perspective,
10: get exhausted. So she doesn't see any real diplomatic prospects, at least until Russia faces even more severe losses on the battlefield and more financial losses from sanctions. But there are growing calls for diplomacy around the world, particularly from countries in the global south, hard hit by rising food and energy costs. That's understandable, says Marie Ivanovich, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. This war
13: is a disaster for Ukraine on so many different levels, um, and frankly, it is for Russia as well. And so countries want want that to stop.
10: But imagine, she says, there's a robber who invaded your home and took over several rooms.
13: And when the police are called and the police come in and the police say, in this case, the international community, well, you know, I mean, the robber has possession of the lower part of your house. So, you know, you really should make concessions to the robber. And, you know, we can all just move forward. I mean, from a Ukrainian point of view, this is completely unacceptable.
10: Yovanovitch says Ukraine has to win and Russia's, quote, imperial mindset needs to be defeated. She's skeptical about recent peace proposals from China China, as is Lise Howard of the U.S. Institute of Peace.
12: It's not clear to me what would be negotiated at this point. I mean, sure, if it's negotiating a Russian troop withdrawal, then that would make sense. As China said, sovereign borders need to be upheld. That's the first point in their peace plan. So it seems to me that if we uphold the first point of China's peace plan is to uphold sovereign borders, that that would be a great negotiating point to start from.
10: U.S. officials say China is, quote, far from being an honest broker. It has supported Russia economically and diplomatically, as it did again today in the G20 meeting, opposing a joint statement about the war in Ukraine. India, which hosted the meeting, could be in a better position to broker some kind of peace, says Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He points out that India abstained from UN votes on Ukraine and has been a major importer of Russian oil and gas since the war began.
14: On the other hand, of course, uh, India has influence in Washington because Washington is so anxious for India uh, to become a partner against China. So I find India a perhaps the most hopeful possibility.
10: He's not hopeful, though, of any peace process anytime soon, but he says as the world and the warring parties grow tired, there could be a, quote, provisional peace of exhaustion. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
8: Why aren't kids showing up to class? That's a question many educators are asking this school year. By some estimates, chronic absenteeism doubled during the pandemic. And now, about halfway through the most normal school year since 2020, the situation hasn't improved in many places. And that means more students are at risk of falling behind and even dropping out. NPR's Janaki Mehta looked at what's keeping students from going to school and what can be done to bring them back. When the school year began,
15: Isaac Moreno just did not want to go. He was transitioning to junior high after spending his last two years of elementary school mostly at home in Los Angeles.
16: I think the reason I didn't like it at first was because I hadn't been to a middle school and the schedule was really different and everything. He says he never really liked school to begin with. So after two and a half years
15: of pandemic learning, going back five days a week in person was a major adjustment.
16: Like before I was going to one class and now it's split up into eight different classes. And there was just like a lot of work.
17: Three days a week or four days a week, he would say to me, I'm sick.
15: I don't feel okay. Can you just pick me up? I don't want to be here today. That's Isaac's mom, Jessica Moreno. She says Isaac's missed 10 days of school so far this year. That means he's at risk of being chronically absent. That's when a student misses 10% or more of the school year. Students who are chronically absent tend to have trouble with reading and lower test scores, and they're more likely to drop out of school.
18: Here's Hetty Chang. She leads the research organization Attendance Works. Before the pandemic, about 8 million students were considered chronically absent in the United States. By the end of last school year, that number is likely 16 million students.
15: In other words, she says the number of students who lost the routine of going to school doubled.
18: They've lost connections to peers. They've lost connections to adults. And it has certainly been exacerbated by very challenging staffing issues in schools.
15: Federal data on chronic absenteeism only comes out once a year. So it's hard to get a full picture of where things stand right now. But Chang says she hasn't seen the kind of recovery she'd hoped for.
18: I think people have been a little bit under the false impression that when COVID became more endemic, that that would then result in a significant improvement in chronic absence. And I'm not seeing that.
15: We didn't see it either. In a survey of more than 20 school districts across the country, NPR found most still had heightened levels of chronic absenteeism. School leaders told us there are lots of reasons for this.
19: There's so much more fear of sending children to a, a place. There's lots of people gathered. So when you think of housing, dealing with homelessness, affordable
20: transportation, yeah. uh, due to transportation, I, I think mental health, I'm sure that plays a part too. And
15: that was Steve Carlson, Mel Atkins, and Ryan Vogelin, school leaders in New Mexico, Michigan, and Maryland. They echoed challenges we heard from educators in rural, suburban, and urban districts. Vogelin is the Director of Student Services in Anne Arundel County Public Schools. He sees the problem in his county getting worse and worse.
20: I would say transportation has been our number one issue this year. Um, we are short bus drivers. We have struggled all year to cover all bus routes. You know That impacts a lot of our um, higher poverty areas, where some of our parents don't have as flexible jobs, where, or, or they may not have access to their own transportation.
15: Steve Carlson leads a school district in San Juan County, New Mexico. It's mostly rural, and part of it's in Navajo Nation. Attendance in his district has improved over last year, but it's nowhere near pre-pandemic times. The immense loss from COVID is still raw for families in his district.
19: Navajo Nation suffered from the pandemic in crazy proportions compared to the rest of the nation. As a matter of fact, we still have in our schools, we still have a mask mandate, and we We're dealing with a lot of mental health issues.
15: All reasons showing up to school has been harder for his students. As is often the case in education, kids living in poverty, students of color, and children with disabilities are more likely to be chronically absent. School leaders told me they're trying all kinds of things to bring kids back to school. And they're using COVID relief money to pay for those efforts. Here's Carlson again.
19: So we've brought in social-emotional learning help. We have kind of extra counselors. His
15: district is also investing in a research-backed strategy that's proven to show results knocking on doors
18: home visits can be very effective when they're done well
15: that's Hetty chang again the state of connecticut put close to 11 million dollars of its federal relief aid toward a home visit program six months later home visits improved attendance by about 15 percentage points chang says high quality regular visits lead to strong relationships between schools and their students relationships that give kids a sense of belonging. Another thing schools can do to help attendance is collect data throughout the school year, not just once at the end of the year.
18: When you look at your data regularly, it can allow you to reach out to students before the challenges are so entrenched that you can't turn them around.
4: Uh, we've looked at data on a weekly or a biweekly basis.
18: That's Mel Atkins. He leads
15: attendance efforts for Grand Rapids Public Schools in Michigan. For years, his district didn't just gather data, they shared it in big ways.
4: We had these eight-foot leaderboards in the building that displayed our monthly data. And it wasn't always good, but what it did was spark a conversation.
15: A conversation that got lots of community leaders educated and involved in a robust program to get kids to school. Within three years, they cut chronic absenteeism by more than half. The pandemic hampered those efforts, but this year Atkins and his team are focused on bringing back a playbook they already know works. And Hedy Chang wants school leaders to know, even though it's more than halfway through the school year, there is still time.
18: It's not too late to identify the kids struggling in the first semester and invest in outreach. You still have enough time to improve attendance.
15: Isaac Moreno also has time to improve his attendance and avoid becoming chronically absent this year. He tells me going to school still feels like a lot, but there are some things he looks forward to now.
16: Just recently in my school, opened up a bunch of like sports for middle schoolers. And I think that's something that kind of made school fun again. What do you play? I play basketball.
13: I see a big difference in the past two months. He
15: now has friends, and I think that's giving him his life back. Back in school and back to some kind of normal. Janaki Mehta, NPR News
9: you're listening to all things considered from npr
0: news this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. An upsweep for stocks today on Wall Street. that Dow rose more than 1%, 342 points, to close at 33,004. SP and p and NASDAQ both gained about three-quarters of a percent. The S&P finished the session at 39.81. The NASDAQ closed at 11,463. Details of this day in business coming up in about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 6.20.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Broadway in Boston. Celebrating 20 years with Lexus with the newly announced 23-24 season. Featuring Disney's Frozen, Moulin Rouge, Girl from the North Country, Company, and MJ the Musical. Season tickets and more information are available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com.
0: Join us at WBUR City Space Sunday, March 12th for an afternoon of classical and folk music featuring Rasa String Quartet. Tickets are at WBUR.org events.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com.
0: Should have mainly clear skies tonight, windy down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow, gray once again, highs about 40. And then snow and rain tomorrow night, maybe one to three inches of snow on the ground when you wake up on Saturday. Should have snow and rain taking turns later on on Saturday. Wild winds, highs about 38 degrees, and then partly sunny skies due in for Sunday. This is WBUR.
22: WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, An immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org.
0: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Christopher C. Gorham teaches modern American history to high schoolers in Westford, Massachusetts. Several years ago, he was captivated by a photograph from the middle of the 20th century. It showed President Harry Truman speaking animatedly with a woman identified as the Assistant Secretary of Defense, Anna Rosenberg. Gorham had never heard of her. There was no biography of her, nothing that would even hint at the singular power this woman wielded, not just with Truman, but with presidents before and after. Gorham tracked down Anna Rosenberg's archives at Harvard, and he was stunned by what he found.
32: There was handwritten letters from Harry Truman, President Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson, it was just on and on. It was a treasure trove of history.
0: All written to Anna.
32: Yes, yes.
0: Anna Rosenberg was the top woman at the Pentagon during the Truman administration as it desegregated the armed forces. President Eisenhower nominated her for the Medal of Freedom, and LBJ sought her counsel during the battles over civil rights. But Rosenberg played her most pivotal roles during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. Chris Gorham felt her accomplishments shouldn't be lost to history. So he wrote her biography. It's called The Confidant. He says Anna's story begins in Hungary. She was born there around 1900. Her family was Jewish and anti-Semitism was growing. Her father lost his job and sought refuge in New York. Anna and the family joined him there two years later.
32: By then, he was a fiercely patriotic American. He loved the idea of voting, of jury duty. He, The American flag brought tears to his eyes. And young Anna you know, really saw that in her father and and it became part of her life. She said, you know, every time I leave the United States, I come back with a renewed love. She had a
0: great way about her. And I think that served her well on the diplomatic front and on the personal front. She was demure. I know you say she spoke with a light Hungarian accent with a bit of the Bronx where she grew and up kind right. of mixed in.
32: She was genuine. I should say that to start. But she was a chameleon insofar as If she was talking to a teamster's union of truckers, she could talk tough. You know, she could use some of the salty language, but she could also be, like you say, demure, and she could be uh, very womanly. She also had a wonderful relationship with women. And it was just a very rare combination of skills, of EQ that Anna Rosenberg possessed.
0: And under FDR, she became his top labor troubleshooter. And there's one chapter that I especially like that you have on on, uh, what's called the Buffalo Plan. It was the fall of 1942. She took on the issue of a shortage of workers in Buffalo. And Buffalo, New York at the time, was a hub of production for aircraft and ships and ordnance for the war effort. FDR wanted to find out about the labor crisis and what could be done to fill the gaps. So she proceeded to get command of the situation and create an entire workforce where there had been none. How did she go about doing this?
32: Roosevelt sends Anna Rosenberg and makes her the czar of the situation, the labor czar of, of that region. And she said right away, we're going to need more women. And it wasn't just single women. It was married. It was married with children. And they were going to need child care. And they were going to need housing. And they were going to need a place to cash their checks at... Two in the morning when they got out of work. And she thought of all those things. I Absolutely. mean, aside from the
0: job, she thought of all the ancillary things that had to go with this to make were, it work.
32: There was parks that were kept open and heated. There was movie theaters that were kept open for these women. You mean
0: like at five in the morning? Absolutely. So they would have a movie to go through if they were working that shift.
32: And not only women, but black Americans. And when the leaders of Buffalo resisted, and I lectured them and said this is no time for disunity, this is no time for discrimination, it's all hands on deck. And disabled Americans, everybody pitched in, and those contracts were fulfilled. And uh, we were able to fight the war on all the fronts.
0: There was uh, one interesting anecdote that you have, that there was a bored young woman in a factory in Buffalo. This woman was punching out tiny screws on a machine. And Anna said to her, this is pretty monotonous, huh? And the woman said yes. And so Anna grabs her arm and follows her through the manufacturing process to what end?
32: They link arms, and they go through the factory, and they find out that those little tiny screws that this woman was putting together all day long were part of a gun sight for a fighter plane. And the woman had a totally different look on her face, and it was a look of pride.
0: And this plan, the Buffalo Plan, became a national model. How?
32: The folks in charge of airplane manufacturing on the West Coast, shipbuilding on the East Coast, they took the Buffalo Plan and they grafted it everywhere uh, from coast to coast. And it allowed the arsenal of democracy to fire on all cylinders for the duration of the war.
0: She was dispatched by FDR to the battlefield twice. What was her role and how did she
32: execute it? Just a few weeks after D-Day, Anna finds herself following the General Patton's army across France. And she's sleeping in the tents. She's eating rations off the hoods of Jeeps. And she's listening to these guys, these, these soldiers. And they're pulling pictures out of their helmets and telling her stories and sharing their dreams and their hopes for the future. And what she found is that they wanted an education. They wanted to go to college. This generation of Great Depression and then war had never even dreamed that that was a possibility. But if they made it back alive, that's what they wanted to do.
0: And they wanted health care, and that became part of the a major part of the GI Bill. Absolutely. She had a nickname, Seven Job Anna. Tell us about her, some of the other jobs that she had.
32: Well, she had two executive positions in the New Deal a half dozen wartime positions. They used to call it manpower, but it was really a personnel position. She then turned to Veterans Affairs. She loved the guys that she had spent time with in Europe. She'd seen what they'd seen, the death, the destruction, the widows, the orphans. And she knew they were different people when they came back to the States than when they'd left. So she worked very, very assiduously for Veterans Affairs.
0: With all that she accomplished, why do you think there had been no previous book about her, including an autobiography, a memoir?
32: I think she provided a moving target for historians, and one of the reasons was her own reluctance to trumpet her accomplishments, and that a lot of it was related to her name. You know, she shared the surname Rosenberg with the atomic spies.
0: And there was no relation.
32: No relation at all. In fact, Rosenbergs around the country were shunned and lost friends. and But Anna didn't want to trumpet her own accomplishments in part because of the name. And she also, all the folks that had worked in the New Deal and through with Roosevelt during World War II had written memoirs. And she found that distasteful. The me and FDR memoir uh, industrial complex was not to her liking. And she thought, you know, I've been told in the Oval Office and in the sunroom of the White House and over lunches and dinners, one-on-one with President Roosevelt, all these things. And I'm going to keep the confidence. And she was the confidant after all.
0: Christopher Gorham, thank you.
32: Thank you, Lisa, for having me. And thanks to your listeners.
0: Christopher C. Gorham is the author of the book The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America. This is WBUR, decreasing clouds tonight down around 29. Clouds should gather again tomorrow, though. Highs about 40 degrees. Tomorrow night, snow showers amounting to about 1 to 3 inches on the ground by Saturday morning. If the clouds do clear out enough tonight where you are, you could get a chance to see Jupiter and Venus practically nudging each other. Look for two gleaming diamonds in the western sky. This is WBUR. It's 630.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life.
6: Fairbankandperry.com.